everybody. I'm Chris, co-host of the Marvelous Madams podcast. And I am Josh from the Tabletop Journeys podcast, joined with my co-host, Lee Winika. Say hi, Lee Winika. Hi, Lee Winika. Seriously, I'm Lee Winika. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> Today, we are teaming up together here to discuss Sam Raimi's Spider-Bitch 2. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. That's Spider-Man 2. Should, should, should we start this episode with a moment of silence for the acting that Kirsten Dunst tried to do with that awful script? We right, could. We could. <laughs> but how about we just throw her a nod for that great Vera Wang run out of the wedding? Because that was a commercial. <laughs> like, I'm not even a bride and I would have bought that dress just from that run out. That was cool. Oh, goodness. Let what? me tell you, we'll get to that moment. But that was my I'm going to break my television moment. Chris, we must really like you because I actually sat down and watched this movie so that we could record this episode. I did this for you, Chris. <laughs> I did this for you. If that doesn't say how much we love you over here at Tabletop Journeys, then nothing will. Suffer as I have suffered. <laughs> My pain shall become your pain. <laughs> exactly. Now, as I said, when Tara Kearns and I discussed Spider-Man, I'm fully aware that tons of people love and revere this movie. Lee Winika is one of them. I love those first two, not the third, Spider-Man movies for a host of reasons. I just Love is strong. I, I get maybe it's more. I really enjoy them. Love them is different. It's I, like I have this weird <laughs> kind of hate relationship with them, too. It's like there's things about it that are great. And there's things about them. Like, why would you ever like this is just off? Yes. And that's why I'm glad you're here today, because neither Josh or I cares for this movie. Understatement. And <laughs> so it's giving us a more balanced conversation. I mean, look, this was the most 2004 movie I think that I have seen since about 2004. Like, I'd forgotten what that era of optimism and lightness and everything was like a mere 15 years ago. I mean, that was, <laughs> think of the hope and opportunity that we all saw in 2004 for what cinema could be and what the world could be before it turned into a flying pile of crap. Yes, we've definitely got some post 9-11 Bush era filmmaking <laughs> right. yes, we did. going on here. Yeah. Uh, I like to call it Freedom Fries filmmaking. And we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> so as usual, everybody, we're going to go through this movie. And if I do repeat myself a little bit from uh, the first episode, I will try uh, to be concise with that. But overall, in, in case I haven't made it clear, I would rather clean a gas station bathroom than watch this movie again. <laughs> <laughs> and you're from Jersey, so that says something. <laughs> it really does. Like a turnpike gas station bathroom? Oh, see, now that's a different level of gas station. Let's be clear. Like, <laughs> there are gas stations and then there are turnpike gas station bathrooms. I mean, there's a difference. I, 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 You never trust a gas station that cares more about pumping your gas than cleaning their bathrooms. Like that's When the gas station is outside rather than inside, that's where the worry begins. <laughs> We digress. Sorry. I hope you're not trying to stay on topic here, Chris, because let's... We are the wrong cats. <laughs> We're the cat. wrong cats for that battle. This is true. So just like Spider-Man 1, we'll say, this movie begins with voiceover. And I actually, to its credit, think it worked pretty well in the first movie. But here, it just sets this tone for Peter Parker in this movie of golly gee willikers, MJ. I think this is 
perfect, like pitch perfect Peter Parker from the comic books from the 70s and, and 80s and early 90s. He is, to quote you, a whiny bitch. It is why I am, it is why I am quoted often as saying, why don't you like Spider-Man? And that's why. That yeah. voiceover was so on point for the character that I read. And even though I hated the character, I read that comic because I'm a, I'm a comic guy. I owned a comic book store. You just bought Spider-Man. Why? Because he's freaking Spider-Man. And I have to tell you, it is the character I absolutely never liked because of that tone. That is exactly how he was written in the comic books. And it's one of the reasons why I actually like the film, because very few films get their tone correct or accurate to the comic books as this film. It just happens to highlight what I don't like about the character. So why, why would they do that? Like, is that a way to kind of illustrate Spider-Man's inherent immaturity? And they make him whiny because it's supposed to be he's a high school kid or whatever? I think he's whiny because that's the character that Stanley originally wrote. I think that is how Spider-Man was depicted for many years. When I stopped mm. buying comic books regularly, probably five years before that, I had stopped buying Spider-Man regularly because I was like, I'm not putting ducats into this anymore. Comic books were go getting to the two and three and four dollar range. I'm like, I'll spend my dollars on characters I like versus a character I just have to follow to understand the greater Marvel universe. And and Spider-Man was the first one I dropped, quickly followed by actually the X-Men as they got a little more crazy, basically after John Byrne and Chris Claremont left the comic book. I, I don't like whiners, which is funny because before we recorded, I started about whining about my day. I had my gripe, but <laughs> as I see to Josh all the time, I am good for a gripe. But I always pick out the silver lining. I always know, hey, as bad as I got it, there are people who got it worse. And I get on with my day. I never let that stop me from doing the things I need to do. I think what right. I really didn't like about Spider-Man in the comic book, it was like every other story arc or every story arc for the most part during the 90s is, oh, this is horrible. Look at my life. I can't do this. I can't do that. And what am I going to do? And oh, blah, blah, blah. And then he has to go back to this person that reminds him whether it be Uncle Ben, whether it be Aunt May, whether it be Mary Jane, in this film, all of them. You're absolutely right. And that's what drives me so crazy about Peter in this movie is that Sam Raimi never misses an opportunity, no matter how small, to show us what a loser Peter Parker is. Oh my they God. double down oh, from yeah. the first movie. Yeah, like tripping, just walking, being happy. Like, here, fall on your face, dumbass. And I cannot take him seriously. I can't yeah. respect him, and therefore I cannot like him. I mean, the, it, Peter Parker's character is so bad in this movie that even the spider venom is like, I'm out of here. You can hear the venom goo whispering to itself, he's on a scooter? Seriously? <laughs> a scooter? Really? really? He, he got fired a, from the he, pizza he's place? He's a damn superhero, and I'm on a second-rate Vespa. What the <laughs> actual F? Yeah, and how bad yes. do you actually have to be to have to to be like okay to be in college studying to have a side gig as a pizza delivery boy and to fail spectacularly at both of those things like, he, like and like and to be failing at the whole superhero thing oh my goodness like he just like yeah nothing the irony of it is delivering pizzas isn't isn't rocket science um, like, like the actual rocket science he might be doing. I've actually yeah. done it. it. It's really not that really? complex. With great Although respect, I will all say, those bring us food. I will say in his defense, the idea that any 
New York pizza establishment would have a delivery range of 42 blocks is in itself utter nonsense. Oh, yeah, that won't happen. (laughs) Now, Josh, you mentioned up top the script, which I think is worse than the first movie for me. So we see MJ real quick here, but not in person. Sam Raimi also didn't miss an opportunity to objectify this woman. And Mm. we're making it worse with as many fucking billboards as we can and posters as we can have of this woman. Yeah, she becomes this like this like paragon's the wrong word, but she gets like elevated to like pedestal status, and it just it emphasizes just how much of a kind of a loser Peter Parker is. And I think uh, so. I honestly think that might have been a kind of a visual representation of how Peter felt about MJ more than just like the physical posters and everything like that. I think that's more to symbolize like this is the pedestal that Peter Parker is putting her on. He continues to elevate her. He continues to go ahead and push her up. He continues to make her bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. She's absolutely being objectified by the movie. And I think if I'm trying to extrapolate why that would be, why that would happen is I think that it's supposed to symbolize Peter's kind of internal dialogue with this. I, well, I, think, it, I think that we can only accept that as a possible solution. If we also forget about all the doe eyed, no, Peter, I really do love you moments. Right. Exactly. All the inconsistencies. Exactly. Josh, I think you're totally right about her being on the pedestal. The biggest problem, though, is that the movie says that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That Uh, this is healthy when mm. it's anything but. This is sweet and romantic. No. Not in any universe. Absolutely not romantic. Romance I want to be a part of. Yeah. But Uh, did we know that 20 years ago? Yeah, women knew that twenty years ago. Okay, oh, I'm just, okay, fair. That that's my 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 straight white guyness was coming out. Like that's you know, I, I can I can absolutely tell you the women that I was like that with in high school, absolutely knew it. And when I talked to them as adults, their response is, "We were great friends, and they were never interested in me because yeah. I was that ass white yeah. who, who who fell on his face, walked into doors." Couldn't make put a sentence together, never asked the question, never stepped up or did the thing and simply talked with my friends about how much I really love this. And because it doesn't work, it's not a good idea. And we should we have known it. We were just really bad at not filming it and pretending it worked. I think you and I had a conversation the other day about all the high school teen and young college films that that had all these bad tropes that basically lend themselves towards that concept. This is just one of those. To your point, Sam Raimi, if he was a more nuanced director, and that's not a dig on Sam Raimi, that's not the kind of director he is, so one would not expect him to get that right, could have done all the things that those billboards were supposed to symbolize and done them as dream sequences or thought musings, and then it would have made more sense and it would have been a lot less of the movie saying it's okay or mm-hmm. as and more yep. of this character's got this idea wrong. Yeah. Great point. And that's a nuance issue. And Sam Raimi's just not the director for that. And while we're here with the pizza place, this keys in on the other big aspect of Peter Parker's character I have such a hard time with. He's got this sense of entitlement Mm -hmm. that does not sit well with me. Nothing's his fault. He doesn't come outright and say it, but he's always acting like whether it's Asif Manvi here or the landlord or Jameson, he's always acting like everyone should cater to him, even though he has done nothing, even though he is incredibly lacking. Dr. Connors, too. Every time he feels he's entitled for what? 
I know you're out fighting crime, buddy, but guess what? Number one, nobody else does. And two, get your shit together. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, if you, uh, I would describe it this way. Clark Kent never whined when he got in trouble for being late or not doing a thing because somebody didn't know he was Superman. He knew they didn't know he was Superman and he knew he let them down. Done right. issue. Clark, mm. better person than Peter for that reason alone. I'm not going to get into the whole Superman versus Spider-Man thing. That's a whole different issue. I'm happy to fight that battle, just not today. But <laughs> in that one aspect, because they have very similar archetypes in that way, or they're very, they have very similar issues, Clark knew, knows what people expect of him as a person. He either got it done, was there on time, or didn't. When in the comic books where Lo at the time when Lois didn't know he was Superman and he was showing up late, didn't do a thing, and she was getting frustrated with him and he thought he was losing that relationship, he had to make the call. Tell her, not tell her, continue this, don't continue this, whatever it was, but he made, and he made the decision, let her in so she knows it's not me flaking. It's not me saying I don't want to do this. And he made that call in the comic books. By the way, a much stronger writing team than, than Spider-Man had during those same years, and clearly a much stronger writing team than Spider-Man had in this film. It's just a different way of, of doing it. And I think, like I said, it's pitch perfect. The thing I love about this movie is this is perfectly a comic book movie. This does this element of Peter perfect justice if you don't like this character then you would not like peter in the comic book era of 1970s to 1990s because this well, is you exactly know, who he was i think it speaks to generational writing too because this is just the sense of entitlement it's just one way that this movie to me at least screams white male boomer director yeah oh yeah you gotta give me another chance uh, i tried real hard no, no, uh, who cares did the job get done, dude? Did the job right. get done? I can't help but think for a guy who lives by the credo with great power comes great responsibility. He's pretty shitty at taking responsibility for his own life and can't see mm -hmm. the eye. Awful at it. Awful. And at the it. movie doesn't see it either. No, it, the movie is completely tone deaf to that issue. So here's the million dollar question. So we're talking about the, the scene where he brings in the photos. How does Peter Parker get pictures of Spider-Man? That not is an excellent question. Because this is 2004. It's not like he's got like remote webcams that he can go ahead and control from his like from his spider venom shooter thing. I love this part. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, are you going to explain technology to me? I am. Oh, okay. I'm going to explain technology to you from the 1960s because this is where this all came out, right? In the comic book, and certainly in the older animated Spider-Man, he would literally he got this fancy camera. I don't remember how he got the money for it, but he got this fancy camera where it could take automatic pictures. So it would just take like a whole roll of film in rapid succession, and he would set the camera up in an angle with his webs, and then beat up bad guys in view of the camera, and he would get action shots on this one little camera in this area. And that's how it was done in the comic books. They actually depicted that in the first film, if I remember correctly, where he says, smile for the camera. And then he looks up at the streetlight where the camera was was held up. They just left that out of that. So you don't see that here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how I'm fine with that. But they don't like the specific shot they used in that scene. There's no way he gets that shot based on the way Peter did it. Yeah, I'm OK. I think a lot of those 
amazingly beautiful swirling newspaper scenes which are so nostalgic and i absolutely love about this film were not done to be precise in-universe canon type things even though they kind of were it was more like this is a nod to the old shows and the, yeah. and basically spider-man of the 70s is really was it was a nod and i appreciated that and didn't really jump into the uh implausibility of it. speaking of photos thank god for jk simmons in this entire trilogy he <laughs> has what i think is the best line in this movie and it's right here when peter's whining about the money he looks at elizabeth banks and says miss brant get me a violin <laughs> I, I i love that line i actually marked that down in my notes because it was funny and i realized i'm just gonna take i'm just gonna quote jjj through this entire thing yeah i will say this though i thought the better line was call what's her name the caterer tell her don't open the caviar don't, don't open the caviar <laughs> <laughs> like i didn't get it in 2004 but now that I'm the dad of a 24-year-old uh, daughter and yeah. I have a, 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 thir- a 29-year-old son who's been through a wedding, I, I, I feel that quote. <laughs> the caterer? Yeah, not over the caviar. It was a great quote. I like, That character is immeasurably it, quotable. Immeasurably quotable, exactly. So we're moving on from the bugle, heading over to campus where Peter gets reamed out by Dr. Connors as he should. Mm-hmm. And then it is off to Peter's surprise birthday party. Oh, is this <laughs> pathetic? Oh, my God. If I ever wanted to be the guy who just nobody really gave a crap about, that was the show. That was what that was. Like, I'm like, wow. I didn't even realize it was a birthday party at first when I watched it in 2004. Worse yet, knowing the movie, watching it again the other yeah. day, I forgot it was a birthday party. That was just sad. <laughs> To be fair, it is a little tough to tell, given that there are only four people present. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, I mean, again, I think that kind of underscores the whole pathos of Peter Parker. He's a loser. Peter Parker is not succeeding at life in this stage. And we have all been there, right? We have all been there where we have been that loser at one time or another. But man, it is. Yeah, he's not winning. (laughs) I I shake my head so much in this scene. Number one. MJ is suddenly in a Broadway show and has a modeling campaign. Okay, yep, that happens right away. Sure. But also, are we just pretending that Harry and MJ didn't date and we had that whole weird love triangle thing with Aunt May in the hospital? Oh, and also he treated MJ like shit in front of his father. We're all just dandy now. (sighs) I I think... Again, this is where Raimi is not your nuanced direct. No. And they, there's several things that were very badly left out of this film. One, the time jump between the end of the first movie and this movie, I believe should have been something like four, maybe even five years. Yeah. And they don't explain it. They it's don't not explicit, physically yeah. look it. Uh, there's a significant time difference. And if they explain that in the film, the fact that they're over this end of high school issue makes sense. Five years after high school, who dated who is much less of an issue. It's only two years. Yeah. They say it in the movie that it's only been two years well, since hmm. Ben's death. So they're 20 years old. What are we all doing drinking at this cocktail party? They're not even old <laughs> enough to do it later in the movie. <laughs> if Again, that's 2004. Case, that was less yeah. important. <laughs> and it's New York. Come on. An 18-year-old yeah, no. that can't find a place where he can grab a drink in it. it 
I'm not condoning that for the audience. <laughs> I'm just well, saying. We've got some more issues than that with just age here. So Peter and Harry are not living together anymore. We have no reason why on that. We do know that uh, Peter has his own place now. Why he has his own place, I'll never know. Because one, he's perpetually broke. And two, he's very worried about Aunt May. So why would you move out? Again, this is where they perfectly mimic the comic book. And I missed the fact that it was two years, mind you. But in the comic book, the stuff they're depicting in this film is supposed to be five years after the stuff they depicted in the first like end of high school and this era of his college career. And some of the things that have transpired explain that, like the reason for moving out was to be closer to campus and his job because commuting from Queens to the city for both of those things was impossible, even for Spider-Man because all those big buildings he likes to swing off, swing around on are not in Queens. Not um, Queens, right, and, yeah. and, it's all residential. He can't, yeah. he can't do that in Queens, so he has to get to the city to do that, to get that kind of rapid movement. And so that's where that was explained, and that became why he was broke. He was never broke when he lived at home. It was when he moved to the city and had to pay the big expenses of the apartment that he started becoming perpetually broke. And it moved on in the comic books that way. I just think the movie did a bad job of explaining that transition. And Certainly. me as the comic book nerd just accepted it as, we're in the next phase of the, of the character, so I never yeah. even looked twice at it. All right, sir. I have another question for you. Mr. Osborne is now head of special projects at Oscorp. The 20-year-old guy who barely graduated high school, who was struggling in college. How exactly has... How does that happen? Because he's daddy's kid. I declare Daddy's poppycock. Dead. Daddy's dead and the board voted daddy out. I declare poppycock. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing, but it is now a thing. Yeah. I declare poppycock. I have no idea. On the half that I love and the half that I hate and the stuff that I hate because or I love because I hate it, that falls into I just hate the hate. Yeah. That's just terrible. It makes yeah. absolutely no sense. It is literally James Franco and... He has a lot of issues that we now know about, so I'm not going to go all in on that in this moment. Yep. But in 2004, James Franco was an upcoming and rising star. He had he was an actor who had some pathos, who had some character, who could do some things. And they simply said, we can't lose this actor from this franchise, so we need to put him in here. And he's got to be in a position where he can do something other than be around and brood. They weren't going to use him as the villain. Yeah, but that's all that he did. Yes, because oh, well, Harry he, Osborn shouldn't be in charge of a fucking Burger King. Yes, he did just brood, but the idea was they wanted him as the villain in the third film, or a villain or an antagonist in the third film. So in this film, he had to do the next stage of evil. So they had to put him in a position where that was possible. So I yeah. literally think they were like, give him the position and no one's going to give a crap. I hate the decision. <laughs> I, I can't really, I'm not going to defend it. I think it was a terrible idea. Oh, I'm just going to say, I think that's why they did it. They I needed I mean, him in a position to say, you have a connection to Octavius, which is you told him to go get Peter. That's uh, all. He, he was a plot mover in the thing. And they right, allowed he had the tritium. But, which, uh, by the way, why would it, you see something like that in a safe in the middle of an, a, a New York penthouse apartment? But that's. Oh, yeah. That little mini fridge. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> this, this actually, though, 
really goes to MJ's storyline too. And it has to do with the misogyny of this yeah. movie, of this trilogy. There's a difference between m- malicious and careless misogyny. And yeah. this movie is an example of careless. Yeah. Yes. Because not only is MJ just so all over the place, inconsistent, they don't care about her at all. She's just a device. But here yeah. we see- She's a chess piece, yeah. She's objectified. She's just the object of desire. We'll make her a model. We'll make her in this, we'll put her in this play to further objectify her and put mm-hmm. her on this pedestal mm-hmm. and make her look shitty as all hell yeah. in this. Oh, movie. yeah. But we will elevate the white man to a job he couldn't possibly mm-hmm. deserve or have earned. Yeah. I mean, we've all done some acting stuff before. How unprofessional was it when she caught Peter in the audience and she was so consumed by the face of Tobey Maguire that Thank you, know, you. that this award-winning actress who has been getting rave reviews all of a sudden forgot herself in the the glare from his glasses. Like, oh, it was like I swear it's on. in my notes. Come on. It makes her it look so been- unprofessional. That's a cardinal rule of theater. Yeah. And yeah. worse yet, clearly it's happened before because the director is right there, page in hand, ready to feed her the line. Yeah, exactly. Like, has Why would he be there in that moment ready for that one scene? I believe, and this is, this is like, again, where I have this love-hate for the whole Spider-Man thing, comic book and, and, and movie, is in the comic books, MJ is such a much, is such a more impressive character. I won't go so far as to say she's a paragon of modern female empowerment because I don't think she's that in the comic books at all, Mm -hmm. but she is so much superior to what she has ever been on film. I am looking forward to seeing Homecoming and seeing how Zendaya continues her portrayal of the role to see (laughs) No Way Home. Sorry. Yes. That's right. You haven't seen it yet, have you? I I have not. Oh, goodness. But I can tell you that- Chris, you've seen- Sorry. Chris, you've seen it, right? Oh, yeah, she's twice. Okay. You will not be disappointed by Zendaya's presentation of MJ. She's a fantastic actor. I love limited fashion. She was in Dune. I loved her in the first uh, two movies, and I'm really looking forward to this. Have you ever known me to cry at an MCU movie before? And Chris, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I cried three separate occasions. I'm like, I'm getting teary eyed just thinking about it. Yep. So as you had mentioned, Harry here is also a tool because Oscorp is funding the research of Dr. Otto Octavius for this fusion project. Yeah, who thinks this is a good idea? In the middle of the city. Like, come on. Yes. And it's very vague. It's super nebulous. And they just kind of plant that seed here now along with you won't tell me who Spider-Man is so I'm going to take my ball and go home. Uh, right. That whole thing. And but let's not worry. I mean, clearly Dr. Octavius is not a mad scientist who created mechanical arms with actual artificial intelligence. After all, he created an inhibitor chip. How could this go wrong? I know, that a was super not flimsy armored. inhibitor chip. Yeah, that was not armored or protected in any I have yeah. a better case on my cell phone. <laughs> See, he needs to get an otter case for that shit. I'm telling you. I mean, he could have gone to the 7-Eleven, the local quickie mart, and picked up an otter box and bent that thing around. Hell, wrap it 
in cellophane if that's what it takes. No, I mean, and it would have been in better shape than what he had. If you're going to create all-powerful, virtually Im- impervious to all types of damage, expandable, super strong, mechanical octopus arms, why make them with their own artificial intelligence? Like, why even risk that? Like, what? Like, because clearly he understood the risk or else he wouldn't have made an inhibitor chip. Clearly he well, understood, like, maybe I made these fucking things too smart. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Yes. You know what happened, Josh? He spent so much time wondering if he could. He didn't think about it. He should. He should. Oh, yes. Jeff Goldblum could have only improved this movie. Jeff I mean, Goldblum could improve most movies. Like, <laughs> yes. like, let's just, a simple Jeff Goldblum cameo, like, that's who they should get to do cameos now. They just have right. Jeff Goldblum do them. So, while we're talking about objectification, there's something else that I wanted to go ahead and talk about, and it's not MJ, because while she became this, like, she, while she was a chess piece on the board, what was up with the landlord's daughter? Dude, like, this is what I'm saying. Come on. She doesn't, I'm fairly certain she doesn't actually get a name until Spider-Man 3. Her name is Ursula. And because, of course, I is. look at somewhat foreign sounding. Right. OK. Go ahead. Right. Carry on. Right. Otherness. Um, yep. Okay. Go ahead. So I think I thought Russian immediately because the landlord is the guy who was the pilot in Air Force One. So <laughs> the sole purpose of this girl woman, I'm not quite sure how old she is. Her sole purpose right. is to fawn over Peter. And beyond that, I find myself asking, are we supposed to yeah. think? This girl is in an abusive situation with her father because all she does is like cook and take messages. Is she trapped with this father? And no. also, is it really I'm her not, father? Ugh, I'm not trying to pick on this woman's appearance, but she is so thin and it is so noticeable because of the clothes they have her in. Are we supposed to think she's not eating enough? Like the father's so cheap, she's not being fed. It's just a horribly yeah. represented in written character yeah and like she has like this whole like ingenue lolita thing like I, I actually think that she's depicted to be significantly younger than peter parker because of all of the creepy the wrong reasons all the wrong reasons yeah, yeah. i found that Ugh. to be so very disturbing watching this again yeah. it was off-putting um, yeah but i will say because i was watching it on amazon prime and they have that beautiful feature where you can pause the scene and see the actors in a scene and then follow the tree of the different things they're in. Um, looking at the actress and some of her later roles, like I've seen her in lots of things actually, or as a more as a character actress. And she does that kind of role somewhat often. Like the things I've seen her in have been that kind of role. I think it was completely out of place in this film. Like I almost got the feeling like if that character or that setup had been in black widow, and she was a recruit for the Red Room or whatever, that would make sense. Or even if it, she had been in the Hawkeye series and she and she, her father was some former tracksuit guy and this is just fallout from the dirty dealings of, of the tracksuit mafia, that would make sense. It's almost like they wanted to do a story here and then bailed on it but left the scenes in for time. Yeah, you're totally right because you don't put a woman... Or a girl in pigtails unless you want her to be younger. Yep. Yeah. That's shorthand yeah. for she's young. Yep. Yeah. And then with so, the chocolate cake thing, like what was that to, like, I don't know. Like I believe I just, that was a film version of, 
I want to have a wholesome relation with you, hence the milk. I think that was all very specific and determined actions to say, Peter, you're worthwhile, and I'm the vehicle for you to feel worthwhile, and here is this potential wholesome relationship without complications. All you have to do is quite literally take me, and that is why it was uncomfortable. So I'm going to go mm-hmm. down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, and so so bear with me, because I when I saw that, the scene with the chocolate cake and the milk, the only thing that I could think of is the, the policy on some level that the U.S. government has to go ahead and support the dairy industry, where they will give, like, you this, this was a big thing like a year or two ago, where they were talking about how, like, like, anytime you see a pizza commercial, why the pizza commercials show how stretchy the cheese is, even though that's not what pizza actually looks like, it's because if they do that, they get money from the U.S. government for supporting the cheese industry, Right. The only thing I could think about, because that scene was so out of place and so bizarre and so wackadoodle, I was like, trying to get money from the U.S. dairy industry, because like that's to go ahead and help fund this vision of what we're seeing here on the screen, because it made no sense otherwise. Like this is like if that made it through the editorial process, then what the hell is on the cutting room floor that wasn't important enough to be in this movie? Like, oh, my goodness. That's a very interesting theory. I mean, a kind of product placement. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I told you it was a little wacky doodle and down a rabbit hole, but I mean, that's the only thing I could think of when I saw it. I was like, what other point does this point does this make? Not as wacky doodle as you think. Yeah. Might as well have been <laughs> holding a Dr. Pepper. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah. And the misogyny extends even beyond Ursula and MJ because we have it with Aunt May when everybody, meaning MJ and Harry, has left and, and she wakes up there at the house. We find out that. Her house is in foreclosure. She's saying, oh, Mm -hmm. I'm just a little behind. And throughout this movie, I mean, for fuck's sake, did she need a babushka at the damn bank? Can we (laughs) hit that nail any harder? Throughout this movie, it is just the constant little widow who can't take care of herself anymore without a man. And it's also, like I said, that boomer filmmaking of this generation won't deal with problems. They will stay in denial until something comes up and bites them right on the ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. But that's Aunt May from the comic books, 1970 through the, through the 90s. That character does not change until the MTV Spider-Man animated series. That is exactly who was on paper. Four-color paper, that's the character who was there. And again, love it for its accuracy to the page, Hate it for what that page descriptive. And that's terrible to say because that actress, she was fine in the role she was handed. She did the thing she was supposed to do. I don't want to take anything away from her. I hate the things she was asked to do. I Definitely. Hate, I, I much prefer the later depictions of uh, of Aunt May, specifically uh, Marissa Torme. She's, she's yep. amazing in everything she does anyway, but... As Aunt May, she's perfect, and, and and why her name is escaping me right now. But from the Sally Field, from the Andrew Garfield ones, I thought she was she was as good as she could be with what little screen time she was given mm-hmm. and what she had to work with as well. But I like those depictions much better, much more capable. But that's not the character that that is absolutely not the character that Stanley created. We have gotten to the point where some of the things Stanley created great icons, tropes, great situations not every character he created was great to surround his heroes his heroes were great most of their surrounding cast we are finding as with every generation and every new filming 
they are being changed, sometimes moderately, most times significantly, and we now like them because they have been changed significantly. And I think this film fits perfectly between the transition from every comic book movie has to be exactly what's on the page in order for fans to, to like it versus let's change a few things to make it something that's worthwhile to watch. This is right before that transition actually happened. And that's, again, it's a love-hate. I love the fact that they perfectly captured the page. I hate the fact that they perfectly captured. Now, do you know who I have, of all the characters in this movie, who I have the most sympathy for? MJ's fiance? Doc Ock? You are brilliant, Josh. Yes, John Jameson. Because he seems like a perfectly nice decent guy and we see legitimately loves mj yeah yes and we see from the beginning here that mj is just the worst because she's trying to play both sides of the situation and john has no idea that he's just a placeholder nobody wants to be the rebound guy he spent his entire relationship her with her as the rebound guy and it just makes no sense in the world. She has this really good looking guy who seems like a good dude who loves her for who she is because he actually knows her and he's a goddamn astronaut. What are you doing pining over <laughs> Peter fucking Parker? <laughs> in comic book canon, he becomes a werewolf shortly, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and as much as you want me to say that's a joke, no. that is absolutely legit. I'm sure it's canon. not. I believe you. No? Yeah, I'm sure legit he's not. Yeah. Now, here's my question for you guys on the flip side of this, because Peter does not love MJ. He is obsessed with her. He is fixated upon an idea yeah. of her. He's yeah. clearly never been with another girl, never even kissed another girl. So Harry Osborne. As his best friend, I mean, come on, you got all this money. How are you not buying your buddy 10 minutes with a hooker to solve this problem? <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm saying 10 minutes generously. Graduation, 18th birthday, because there's nothing healthy about this. Unless he's got severe psychological problems, which I think is more likely, then just expanding his horizons a little bit could potentially fix this whole problem. It's one of the aspects of the character that they didn't translate well from the page to the movie. Yeah, they really didn't because Peter had several relationships before MJ, even though MJ was one of the first characters that he was associated with in the comic books. She did live like next door or across the street. And like the original movie mentioned, MJ's mother or aunt knew Aunt May, and Aunt May was constantly trying to fix the two of them up, but Peter never met her. He had been Spider-Man for years before he met her, (laughs) and he had dated Gwen Stacy, perfectly depicted in the Garfield Spider-Man films. That was pretty close to the way that relationship worked out there, except Gwen got killed by the Green Goblin. Spoiler Mm -hmm. alert. For a comic book that came out in 1965 or so. Details. Um, <laughs> was born. But, and Just then he was also dating Betty Brant, the woman, and they kind of showed that little affection bit a little bit in this film. But don't make me vomit, please. Yeah. He was with her. Actually, he was, she was 
his first love interest. And then when it was determined that she was way too old for him and things didn't work out, that's when he started dating Gwen Stacy. They were together for a long time till her character died. I believe that actually happened maybe in the 70s. But And then Captain Stacy died shortly after that. It was at that point that finally he agrees to allow Aunt May to set him up on a blind date with MJ and she started her first meeting with him at the end of a, of a book with the line that they end this movie with, which is you've waited long enough. Here I am tiger. And that was her entry line. And it's what frustrates me with the way they depict this character is that one, she was the one she was never pursuing him. They were fixed up, but two, she starts kind of where they are trying to make you believe she ends up here, which is, I don't care what you think. I get to make my choices. That's where the character of MJ starts in the comic books, which Mm -hmm. is a far different character than what they've ever shown us on film at this point. Yes. And, and my frustration, one of the things I didn't like about the first one or this one is the fact that happened with that character. Her character is much stronger. She's the one in the comic books in some of the good things that happened with Spider-Man in the nineties that was basically saying, Go handle that. Go do that. You can get this together. She saved Peter Parker from being Peter Parker is probably the best way I could uh, quickly describe what happened. She's a much different and stronger and more believable character on page than she's ever been on film. And I just think they were not going to do Gwen Stacy. They were not going to show that development. So they just said in the first movie, this kiss is iconic. We're going to do that picture. How fast can we get there? Mm -hmm. And threw everything together, bunch of stuff against the wall, a few things stuck, and they literally just put in with this character scenes that happen at various points during the entirety of the comic book relationship, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing individual scenes of things. Her showing up on Broadway and all that, that's from the 90s end when she had been trying out and failing through all the 80s and the 90s. They finally get married, and she's struggling, gets a soap opera, and does soap operas before she gets the modeling career, before she does all the other things. Like there's this whole almost 15 year, 20 year uh, period of time in the comic books, 12 times a year uh, in one book. And she was in like all four of his books before she got to the point where she was there. And they just squish that all into a, in the last two years, she's successful. So on our way to uh, good old Otto's lab, we kind of make a stop at Peter's apartment. Now, I don't know how much British television you gentlemen have watched, but when he opens the door, we see that apartment. I was like, oh my God, it's Mr. Bean's apartment. Tell me it's not Mr. Bean's place. I was like, where is the teddy bear? He's got to be somewhere. He's got to be on the bed. He's hiding. He He must be in there. Because you just know this Peter Parker has some sort of security blanket. (laughs) <laughs> like a stuffed animal. I, I was going to say something really disgusting, but yeah, there's some sort of a stuffed uh, stuffed animal or something in the apartment that, that he's uh, fond of. Let's just. Yes. And it's named MJ. <laughs> oh, see, I wasn't going to make it gross. <laughs> I, I knew where your mind was going. I had I, yeah, to continue it. I, I mean, I wasn't going to be gross and you. Yeah. yeah okay. And, and sorry, I am going to go ahead and step back a little bit here because I wanted to go ahead and say something. And then we tried to go ahead and talk about his apartment. Talking about iconic kisses, right? How hard did Sam Raimi work to make MJ as ugly as possible when they were in the cafe? And she was like, just kiss me. And then that like zoom in on her oddly parted lips 
at, while the car is flying through the window at the end. Like, that's like the stuff that like nightmares are made of. Like, I see you scratching your head, Luanika. Like, that's like, I woke up in the middle of the night, like two o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat. Like, those lips. Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus. Like, it was. So I can't say I noticed it. I didn't notice that, but I have this weird thing with Kirsten Dunst, who's a, a, a fine actress overall. I've been a fan of her since she did Interview with a Vampire. I always picture her as a little child in very much the same way as I have. Oh, no, that's fair. Right? I struggle seeing her as a love interest for anyone. Yeah. I mean, like, she has a portrait of herself in her attic. So, I mean, that, that doesn't help. Right. I just, so for me, whenever she's doing those scenes, I, I find it cringeworthy. Like I, I have adult children who obviously have relationships because I have grandchildren. I don't need to see them engaged in those relationships. Kristen Dunst is one of those actresses where when I see her, I feel that way. And it's because she did such a great job at a very young age when I watched her on film that I have the, that kind of weird connection in my head. And I right. don't know her. I have no connection to her whatsoever. She's not one of my favorites, but I enjoyed I enjoy her work. I cringe whenever she's in those scenes. So that's kind of why I was like, I, I, I can't even imagine that because like that's yeah, I imagine some people have the same problem with Natalie Portman. I do. Mm. Yep. I can imagine. I do. Like yep. the professional was a fantastic film, very disturbing. Ew. Yeah, I, I I love that film for a lot of reasons, but it is weird to watch. I don't watch it often. I own it. It is on my DVD shelf. There are so many things about it I like. I reference in some of the work I do, but I that there are elements of it that are just not right. <laughs> and 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 I don't yeah. think and I think it was by design. In that scene. All I was doing when I'm watching that is like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of gross and disturbing things, let's move on to Harry Osborn here. <laughs> we are yeah. at the lab with uh, Dr. Octavius and goddamn, do I just hate his face and everything about him. And I don't even mean James Franco. Take that douche out of the equation. He's an absolute colossal piece of shit. But Harry Osborne has himself. And the big problem is Raimi and the movie want us overall to have sympathy for Harry Osborne. Then don't cast one of the most punchable faces in all of Hollywood. See, yeah. I didn't see them as wanting us to have sympathy for him. I really thought they wanted us to start hating him. I think they wanted us to have sympathy for him in the first movie. And they wanted us to see this guy is delving into obsession and you need to start hating him because next turn is we're going to make him the bad guy and redeem him. I just felt that about it. And I thought it was rushed and not done overall. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do feel sympathy for Otto Octavius played the, by the always incredible Alfred Molina. He's a very mm -hmm. sympathetic villain. Yes. Yeah, I actually, I, so I actually, I had this preconceived notion of Dr. Octavius before watching this movie of like, like he was the bad guy and he was all these things, right? And then, but seeing the way that, again, while well, he was manipulated by his own greed and by his own hubris and all these things, right? He became kind of a victim of his own device, but he is still, he is at least somewhat sympathetic. He is actually out of control. He cannot control the things that he is doing versus James Franco. I mean, that scene in James Franco's penthouse there when he finds out that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, probably one of the most overacted, badly acted pieces of crap I've ever seen on film. Like it's mm -hmm. and I've seen some crap. Yeah. At, at a LARP. 
Dude, I've seen LARPers with better acting skills than he had in there. Like, oh my God. Chris, I know you said you weren't going to get into that and that was going to hurt you in different ways. I apologize in advance, but. (laughs) That's my trigger word. I'm going to turn into Winter Soldier. (laughs) (laughs) I I have to admit, I did that a bit on purpose. I was like, how can I get the word LARP into this episode? Oh, God ruins me <laughs> i will say on the on behalf of all of us larpers any larper i've ever known who's been in the police force would never have done any of the things that those guys did okay yeah mm-hmm. let's hold on here because those oh that was so awful so awful the way that yeah, let's the, not like, go like, there. like let's oh can i just apologize let's... to everyone that listens to your show about how larpers were portrayed <laughs> in hawkeye we're not like that we're not like that. We're actually like normal people. If <laughs> we really well, are members of society. God. And I will I... say this: the few that are like that, we ostracize too. We don't let them out of their basements. So I actually see Octavius as the opposite, the juxtaposition of Harry Osborne. Whereas Harry is this super spoiled, pampered, entitled piece of shit. We have Octavius saying, "Intelligence is a, pr- is a privilege, not a gift." I like him a lot. I find him to be the most likable character in this movie, regardless of what he does in everything. And I also think he and his wife are the healthiest relationship portrayed in any of these three movies. Mm. For as briefly as we see it. Mm. Absolutely. That's a very compelling. And I would dare say among the healthier relationships portrayed in most superhero films. Yes. They clearly are partners in what they do. They mm-hmm. are solid. And I don't know who the actress is. I don't know her name. But what a subtle performance she gives with so little screen time. The way they look at each other, yep. their body language. It's fantastic. Yep. I have to believe that it must be easier to act in some kind of affectionate and loving way if you're looking at Alfred Molina. I would certainly be able to find him. If I was in a scene with Alfred Molina, I would say, this is my greatest friend. This is my hero. I could easily do that, right? I have to admit, if there's a a person who has amorous feelings towards uh, the the male sex, that must be easier to to accomplish than other folks. He's pretty easy on the eyes overall. And, And the fact that he acts so well must make that process easier also. Yeah. He's so good. Yeah. 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 See, he's so good at what he does, Dr. Octavius here, that he convinces Peter with just a little poetry to give up his vow of leaving MJ alone. And now and now he shall woo her with Byron. God knows what else, because he's fucking 12. And if you're bad poems to choose and completely out of context with with the situation. Right. If you're going to try to woo somebody, the love story of Alfred J. Prufrock is not the right poem to pick because that clearly shows you don't know what English means. <laughs> like, you don't understand the story if that's the poem you're picking. That pissed me right off. As a dude who has spent a lot of time with T.S. Eliot, who has analyzed a lot of literature in my day, that was the poem— like, in the entire corpus of romantic poetry, of actual romantic poetry that you could pick, like Byron, Shelley, Shakespeare, some of these cats you've maybe heard of, that the love story of Alfred J. Proof was what you picked. Why? Yep. Why? 
How much did the T.S. Eliot estate pay you to put that in your movie? <laughs> See, uh, that's that's what I'm saying. Like this is the shiny was... quarter they earned that day. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> you know. Good God. I, I, to me, that is like that is a poetry hack, right? Someone says T.S. Eliot. Someone says Shakespeare. Everybody knows Shakespeare, right? Shakespeare is a universal name. T.S. Eliot is a little more nuanced, right? People will know that anybody who's been in, through any kind of education will likely know that's a poet. They may not even know what his poems were about or certainly what a specific poem was or what that specific quote was a part of, but they'll know he's a poet. Anybody next to that person will say, who's that? Oh, he was a famous poet. Only really smart people know that poet. And literally it becomes a shorthand for you're super intelligent if you can quote this hack. And I think perfectly depicted Peter I'm going to be a poetry hack, so I'm going to grab this poem. And it says a couple words that sound like they're lovely. I have no idea about the context. And here we go. It's yeah. just like somebody saying, oh, I I want a romance like Harley and the Joker. Well, then you're a dumbass, and I don't want to be anywhere near you. Harley and the mm-hmm. Joker is an abusive situation. It is not a romance. Don't right, right. want that for your life. Um, and, and, and it just becomes this shorthand hack. Oh, I, we, our love was like Romeo and Juliet. Do you even know what that story was about? If you're and how it ended, right more now? importantly, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. You have no idea what you're talking about, and you've proven you don't. So I'm done with my discussion. Yeah. That's kind of what I think that came from that. Yeah, uh, and then it gets worse because then what's the poem that he actually quote? What he actually does spout poetry to her? What's the poem that he quotes? Song of Hiawatha. What's that bit about Song of Hiawatha about her dying? Yep. Like, come on. The reason why she's not actually wearing a green dress, she's covered in leaves because she's dead. And it just reinforces the fact that MJ pines for him. She keeps letting him just shit on her. In various yeah. ways. And that's what we yeah. have here. He has, oh, good intentions. He has a ticket to go see her in her show, mm-hmm. but he's got to go Spider-Manning. Now, here's my big problem with this. All right. You look at a show like Daredevil, where there's a lot of ambiguity about how we feel about Matt Murdock and what he does to his friends on that show. Because on mm-hmm. on one hand, he's doing something very important. And on the other, he's treating his friends in a really shitty way. And the conflict there is you don't know if you should feel sympathy for him or not, because guess what? Matt Murdock really enjoys beating the shit out of people. But it's done in a very a nuanced lot. way. Yeah, too much. <laughs> but like he's- here, every time Peter goes Spider-Manning, even here, especially here when he's missing MJ's play, he gives us a woohoo every time. He loves it. He gets off on it. This is what he wants. So mm. don't ask me to feel sorry to be upset for him and MJ when he's clearly not all that invested. But it's just so inconsistent. If they had done those scenes with instead of the woohoo, like he could have woohooed in all the previous ones, right? But in that scene, if he could have been, look, man, I got places to go and you were slowing me down and put a little anger into that. I could feel sympathy for him then because now it's like I'm doing this because I have to, but I got to go. I don't have time for this and literally wrap up that fight in seconds and get mm-hmm. on and then couldn't get in the door. By the way, he's Spider-Man. Go around, bust a window, come in and sneak in. Bruce Campbell right. isn't playing Ash for crying out loud. He's just Bruce Campbell oh. at a door. I'll put it to you this way. 
Bruce Wayne shows up there, if he can't get in the real way, he will just get in a different way. Yeah, he'll go there's Batman. Or, right. There's a karate chop and an open door in the next scene. I guarantee. Yeah, or, or he'll just hand the usher a crisp Benjamin. Yeah. Right. But you like, hang on. Your boss is telling you I just bought the building. Open the door. Done. Okay. You know. So. <laughs> All right, so I, rabbit hole number two, and Chris, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, on something that you just said, this is all kind of like swirling around in my head now. So, is the whole story of Spider-Man for the first half of this movie basically him being demasculated in every single way? Like, is the whole like, is the whole like intrinsic like spiderweb thing like really like a sexual metaphor, and yes. that basically he is being made socially and financially and in terms of his relationship like made totally in, impotent in this movie and that like and that's really what is what they're trying to go ahead and say like in in very vague weird language like is that am i, I going too far that, with this i think you're not exactly what no, they're you're saying not. because the doctor sitting next to him and, yeah and i'm sorry i've never had a doctor sit down next to me while i'm on the bed after a visit that it was 2004. It was a weird time. Yeah. But your answer was quick enough to let me think something has happened that we're going to talk about off microphone. But I, I no, have no, to say good. that's exactly what the doctor was talking about. Everything when he talked about that is, oh, you're having performance anxiety. That's exactly what this was. This was a big, long, this is how you get your mojo back film. Yeah. And, well, and so it's 2004. What's the big drug on the market? Viagra. Viagra. There yeah. you go. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what it is. This was the only thing they didn't do was have a blue sun at the end in the shape of a diamond. That's really <laughs> all they needed to do. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised that there wasn't a scene at the end with him and MJ sitting in tubs staring at the sunset. And it I'm doesn't expect- even make it's bad enough that it is everything you guys are saying. But this whole, as they call it in No Way Home, is existential crisis. It doesn't make any narrative sense. Yeah. Because if they're trying to say, okay, he's losing his powers because he's sad, he's depressed, he's like feeling just awful, then why didn't this happen when Ben died? Yeah. They literally took scenes from various comics, cobbled them together, and yeah. wrapped them around a very good actor and villain and said, blah, Spider-Man story. And then the things they used to put it together were not great. However, we did get some really good Sam Raimi cheesy horror film stuff. When the arms first come alive yeah. uh, and they attack people, that was pitch perfect Raimi horror film stuff. CGI, looking yeah. back 15 years later, we can see it a little bit better that it was really CGI. But I remember being pretty daggum amazed at, at the uh, train scene when it first came out. Yeah, um, And even now, most of it, really held up there's a couple pieces of like uh that could have looked a little better but oh, yeah. honestly that, that the the fight scenes held up uh yeah. some of the practical effects the car coming mm-hmm. through the coffee shop were really yes. well done just the fact that peter could see it off of her eyes was amazing to me yeah like that still is a great scene grab yeah. Like that's I will say that the one thing with the CGI that really bugged me, and again, like this is in a movie so full of awfulness, to go ahead and be this nitpicky seems a little funny, but I'm gonna go there anyway. They just couldn't get Spider-Man's head to match Toby Maguire's head. So every time he pulled off or put on the mask, it's like his head shrunk to be Spider-Man, right? Because Toby Maguire's melon is bigger than Spider-Man's, and so it's like <gasps> like it's like really Toby Maguire the, rest of the CGI is so good. Toby Maguire has a face that is square on the sides. 
Yeah. And then there's like this angle and then there's a square er chin. Spider-Man yeah. there is, is no chin on the sides and yeah, he's very ovular. Like point. Yeah. And like is that too, too is that too nitpicky for this steaming pile of crap or is that like like I think it's because of our general mood with the movie. Yeah, it's like every little thing was like a death by a thousand paper cuts. I think there's a bigger issue coming up here. So we get to the lab. We yep. get to the experiment. And you gentlemen can tell me if I'm nitpicking this as a woman. So the fusion reaction becomes unstable, which was what Peter was worried about. Of course and it does. And we have uh, oh, baby goblin here. I'm in charge here. It's my money. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> and as you mentioned earlier... We are killing off Otto Octavius's wife. And not only are we doing that, but coming up, once Otto is in surgery, we have no less than six close-ups of women screaming in terror like we're in a 1950s schlocky horror movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Because that's Sam Raimi. Yeah. I, I mean... It is pitch perfect Sam Raimi, and it works better in a cheesy horror film than in something that should be better. And this, we should have better representation. This, there should be men screaming just as much, because I don't know about you. If I had a big metal arm grabbing my leg and dragging me mm -hmm. across the floor so that my fingernails are breaking and, and dragging creases in the tile, I'm screaming. Yeah, oh, God. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's so... First of all, uh, that's... Ugh. Let me also say this. I'm the guy that says, what, big guy with big metal arms and, uh, that, that are fused to his back comes in from a weird science experiment? I, I got to call in sick. I'm out. I'm not, I am not the token black guy that goes first. I am uh, not that dude. I will yeah. lead the race out of that hospital. I won't even be in on that block by the time those arms are <laughs> going. Yeah. No, you know, no. I'm, Josh, you know me. I do. I, oh, yeah. I, I'm like, not surprised by this whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, and Matt, me, I'm gonna, Matt, I'm, I'm gonna Costanza that shit. I'm knocking kids and old ladies out of the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How many sacrificial victims can I throw at this thing so it doesn't eat me? Exactly. Oh yeah, yeah. Self preservation. <laughs> so all I see is he's got four arms. That means I got to be faster than five people because I'm giving myself extra. Thank you. <laughs> it's like, do you guys see without a paddle? No. There's a uh, scene in that when Matthew Lillard and Seth Green need to get away from a bear. And Matthew Lillard takes off his shoes. He's like, what are you taking off your shoes for? He's like, I'm faster without my shoes. He's like, you can't outrun the bear. He's like, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Exactly. <laughs> That's a great. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And my other major issue here, and this is going to be a problem for me throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. Nobody notices the guy with eight mechanical robot arms walking around naked in the street. Ever. <laughs> it is He's New York. He's just, I feel like, I feel like it's just, it's New York. It gets, it's a little yeah. much with that. They thought you know? it was a call up from the Yankees farm team. It's okay. Ouch. He Easy. just makes it all the way out to this barge. Yeah. I'm going to call it the barge. I don't know what else to call it. Without I, I, yeah. anyone the wiser. Yeah. Is like, what is that? Is that like a barn on the water? Like, what is that? It, it, I do it, not know. It, it, it's basically a, an old dock with a warehouse on it that has collapsed and is in disrepair. With how expensive real estate is in, at, in New York City, you really think that broken down, decrepit warehouse is going to last any longer than about five minutes after it starts to break down like that? Um, I think there are <laughs> things that are broken like that that are in contest for one reason or another. So they probably sit like that for a while before eventually they get dealt with. Mm, um, okay. 
It could be caught up in probate. Okay. Yeah. I will say this. <laughs> Chris, to your point, I'm going to get, I'm going to leave the barge alone, but to your point, the issue with Doc Ock walking around like that, I always envision he turns a couple corners, brings his arms in and walks in someplace or into a parking garage. So nobody sees him walks out the other way or steals a car and drives away or does something so that nobody sees where he goes after a while. It's very different than say Godzilla came out a few years earlier than this. And they're like, how do you lose Godzilla in New York? I get it. Mm -hmm. New York is big. The buildings are big. They're a kid. It's freaking Godzilla. <laughs> and granted, the Godzilla in that movie was smaller than the one we got in Kong versus Godzilla mm. by a measured amount. Well, that's and like what that's like what Sam Jackson said about Kong Skull Island. He's like, it's not plausible because all you got to do is look for the giant pile of shit. <laughs> Am I right? And that's Sam motherfucking Jackson. <laughs> he can't be wrong by definition. Oh. <laughs> So Doc Ock here, we're very broody, and I think he does a great job like Defoe does with the goblin freakouts. Melina does a great job here talking to himself, talking to the arms. But here's the thing. The power of the sun in the palm of my hand, nothing will stand in our way. To do what? Yeah. What's like the what? end game? What's the plan? Alfred Molina as Snidely Whiplash and Dudley Do-Right had more concrete plans. <laughs> like, I understood Jeez. Alfred Molina in that. Kidnap woman, tie woman to train tracks, kill woman, make Do-Right suffer. Got it. Got what it. is Dr. <laughs> Octopus's plan? I get what Octavius wanted earlier. Cheap energy, blah, 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 blah. When the inhibitor chip breaks and the arms are basically in control, what they want is far too unclear. I think they gave no screen time to, if you say these things are autonomous and have an AI that are taking over, you by definition have to, if you're writing a good product, yeah. explain their point of view. Yeah. Cast away this movie was want. not. And they absolutely did not. And because of that, we have no idea what their motive or their plan, other than he wants tritium, he... Maybe it's a, he, they just accentuate his worst impulses. Like he wanted to finish this. This was his drive. So they have glommed onto that drive and they're feeding the urge to do that at all costs. And whatever his motives are, don't make a difference. It's the drive to do the thing. But again, write it into the script and tell us that. And then folks like me will shut up because we've at least got an answer. <laughs> if you leave us with no answer, we're going to be frustrated that there's no answer. What's even crazier is that on his way to robbing this bank, he uh, clearly stopped at a men's warehouse along the way. <laughs> the big, the big and tall store. <laughs> oh, goodness. That would have been yeah. perfect product placement. We've got room for all of your arms. So Need a stick sleeve jacket? So he got to this bank somehow unnoticed, even though his face would be plastered everywhere. Uh, yeah, well, by he was wearing sunglasses. This. Nobody recognized him. You're totally right. How did I miss that one? And gentlemen, it's that time. We've got to kidnap a woman. <laughs> well, exactly. Always. You can't properly objectify a woman if you're not also going to go ahead and make her a plot point by kidnapping her. Right. Mm -hmm. And this just reinforces Aunt May's absolute helplessness in every aspect of life oh, because she yeah, like, her, like when she doesn't yeah she needs her big strapping grandson at the bank with her right. yeah and then doesn't realize that he's 
to go up against Joel fucking McHale. Right. <laughs> I, I forgot that was totally funny. that he was in yeah. this movie, and it was all the things because I love him in his cameo bits in Stargirl because I think Joel McHale is funny, and I forgot he was here. And he he was he for what they gave him, perfect. Yes. I, I actually I couldn't help it when I saw Joel McHale in the bank there all that I could assume was that was an earlier version of his character from Community right which all of a sudden the fact that, that Jeff Winger was a banker before he had to go to community college huh, totally makes sense that's fair headcanon rules headcanon rules like that's you know I will say this about Aunt May I do r- admire the upper body strength that she showcases holding on for to this umbrella for dear life. She's I only six. In, she's only six inches above the uh, ledge there, so she didn't actually have to. And maybe that's what she. Maybe maybe that's why it was so easy for her because she realized it wasn't really that big a threat. Yeah. Well, she's also shown to never be terribly bright uh, since she does not ever recognize her own nephew's voice as Spider Man, and that is by no means the same thing as Superman in his glass. Exactly. Not I was going to say. Wait a minute here. Exactly. Like that's. No, it's exactly the same thing. I'm sorry, but like anybody who had ever seen uh, Superman. And seen Clark Kent wearing glasses. Like, come on now. Come it's on. It's okay now. there for me because we all, it's just something we all accept in society. It's fine. Yeah. It's we all accept voice. it. Yeah. I could get that right here right now, but I, that's a very long discussion. I will simply say he doesn't just wear the glasses. He changes his posture and he actually changes his voice and in inflection. And Christopher Reeve does the voice bit perfectly. Tyler Hoechlin does the posture bit very well as also and christopher reeve did the posture bit as well if you watch the director's cut scenes and the creating a scene where they actually slow it down and focus on it a bit where christopher burns pretend burns his hand and then stands up for lois in superman 2 that scene extended shows the difference like it's almost a three to four it's almost a three to a three inch difference in height between how he holds himself as clark how he holds himself as superman the glasses and he does it as he's pulling the glasses off. He straightens up and his chest comes out and then he changes his voice to the Superman voice in that one scene. So they are. They I need are, to rewatch I, those. I haven't seen them since I was little. I have. Uh, I watched them. I used to watch them about once a year. I probably haven't in about a year, but I just bought the like six DVD box set uh, a year or so ago. So I have all of them together now. So I, I can kind of do a month-long marathon of of the Superman films and force myself through Quest for Peace because that's a pain someone needs to revisit every now and then to remind them how bad things can get if you (laughs) let it go. That was a nuclear man, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was awful. I mean, with all due respect to Christopher Reeve, oh, he could not have possibly done more, put together a worse film. So now we have to head over to the gala being held for Captain John Jameson here. But it's really more of a pity party, particularly for (laughs) Mr. Osborne. Harry's whole obsession with his father feels a lot to me like Peter's obsession with MJ. It's not real. It's very performative. Mm. That's the sense I get that because Franco is so terrible, in these movies and the the script is so devoid of any kind of depth i don't believe any of it he's just a spoiled little shit who never got daddy's full approval and is just obsessed with an idea of his father that never actually exists that never actually existed 
And interestingly enough, that's exactly what I think Harry Osborne's character in the films is. So I thought his acting was great because he sold that perfectly. Like he sold, I'm a spoiled shit who daddy didn't love me enough. And all of this is on me. It's actually not on his dad in this case. And it's not all the things he wants to say. He's just a brat who has way too much money, way too much power, and yeah. nobody put him in check. The issue is that Franco's not acting. Like, that's the problem, is that Franco's not acting. Franco's just a miserable asswipe, right? <laughs> like, I, I, like, I half wonder if Sam Raimi in the script just said, Franco, be yourself, for like five minutes. The problem for me is that in the first movie, Norman didn't seem like a terrible father. We didn't spend nearly enough time with him, especially pre-Goblin Juice, to establish that he was a lousy or cold or neglectful father. Yeah. I'll be totally frank. Like This is the part of the movie where I would periodically look at the amount of time that I had left in the movie and like, oh, it's not done yet. I'm only halfway through. God help me. Fuck me. Yep. Right? Like, like, like this is honestly around the point that's like, what is going on here like at what point are we going to get the big battle between spider-man and octavia like we don't need all this friggin build up to franco's going to be green goblin be we really don't like it's a much better movie without all that like get rid of it like what, what like and that's a bad place to be in a superhero movie when halfway through you're like okay when is the big fight coming and then when i saw the train fight i was like oh the train fight yes big fight and no nope just the end of act two and I felt the exact same way, which is yeah. why I got my biggest laugh of this movie right here, not from Jameson, but from MJ. When Peter is on the balcony, finds her, she looks at him and goes, oh, you. She is we, my spirit animal in that. We'd been saying that for an hour and a half already at this point. Like, oh, it's Peter Parker again. But don't worry. He's got a plan. Even though he's flip flop a million times, he's got a plan to win her back. Poetry. <laughs> yeah and this also continues the inconsistency of the first movie in terms of how long have they known each other how long have they actually been speaking to each other and this movie establishes they haven't seen much of each other at all in previous months and she says to him her best friend hasn't yeah. seen this play after all these years what are you talking about yeah, because they flip flop back and forth in this movie like five times. Like they're best friends, they're on bad terms. They're best friends again, they're on bad terms again, and then finally they're best friends slash dating slash she's left her soon to be astronaut werewolf fiance at the altar to go ahead and <laughs> potentially be with Peter Parker, and she was perfectly willing to consider leaving the astronaut boyfriend if Peter just said I love you. Oh, oh exactly. Right. right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like it was because she's like, do you love me? Do you want to be with me? What do you want to say? Trying to get him to go so far. Her hand is on his face. And yeah. when he flakes, she's like, oh, by the way, I have a boyfriend. Do you really? Yeah. Do you really? Yeah, do you? Really? And how like, cool we, is he? Okay. <laughs> We've all been in that relationship where the other person in that relationship just wasn't that into you. How stupid does astronaut werewolf Jameson need to be? To not pick up on the fact that MJ's not really that into him. He's. Sometimes it seems she is. And she'll even say to a friend later on, I really love him. And it seems genuine. <sighs> so I think that is a moment where Kristen Dunst read the words on the page 
and sold the words on the page, even though that was a moment when the character should not have been selling the words on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can't fault her for that because the script makes no sense for her character. And now oh. compare this relationship, this triangle here of sorts, compare it to Rachel Dawes in The Dark Knight, mm-hmm. where Rachel moved the fuck on and oh, yeah. she was happy with Harvey. She does have her, a human moment with Bruce saying, yeah, I had said that, but dude, you're never going to quit. And that ship's what does she yeah. do? What does she do? She writes him that letter. We're done. I love Harvey. I'm marrying him. That's the way that needs to be. That's a solid, strong woman who, of course, Mr. Nolan had to then murder, which is a habit of his. He does. Um, and yeah. But I will say this, at least until that moment, he wrote that character the right way. Yes. That move, that moment in that superhero film was one of the first moments where a hero has actually said, you made your choice. Bully for you. Thank God, the world, the city deserves to have a hero like that. But guess what? There's a price to be paid, and the price is you don't get the girl also. Done. That's life. That's a level of realism that doesn't happen in comic book movies often enough. It does happen in comic books fairly frequently. It just doesn't happen in movies, and it usually never happens with the iconic paramour. Yeah. Um, right. And that's what Daredevil does so well, too. You cannot have it both ways. Yep. Daredevil, wouldn't, they would not let him have what he wanted. Like, you can't. And they doubled down on that because not only did yeah. they make it so Daredevil couldn't have what he wanted, but the Kingpin couldn't have what he wanted either. Right. And that is brilliant writing. They It perfectly shows the two sides of the coin. The thing that is missing from both of these Spider-Man films the villain is not the opposition of the character. The villain is almost a thing here, and the character is a thing here that happened to intersect at various times. Now, question, you gentlemen might remember this better than I. Did Amazon deliver two barges in 2004? Did you read my notes? Did my camera show my notes? (laughs) I swear by God almighty (laughs) that you read my notes. Because I actually listed here, dang, Amazon was hot, and there's obviously no supply chain worries, woes for Doc Ock. Because that's <laughs> <is sick. laughs> Yep. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was amazing fast. Yeah, like that's I remember like being like in college, like back at those times when you could like order stuff on Amazon from your phone. It would be in your hand the next day. Like that was the best part of being prime was overnight delivery. But yeah. Oh, man, come on. Just and yeah, and but then, not that big. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> One, Amazon doesn't deliver steel or whatever metal. At least they be. didn't in 2004. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and further, look, this is containing an electromagnetic nuclear reaction. That's not standard steel. You don't find that at your local like hardware store. Hardware yeah. store. Yeah. That is specifically yeah. manufactured and fine-tuned in sealed labs with, with the <laughs> booties on and all the stuff. <laughs> with the booties. <laughs> Supply yeah. chain or nothing, there's at least a 30-day delivery window on something like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> yep, and probably like some regulatory concerns and stuff like that too. Like that, like let's be honest. Like there's that would probably raise some attention. Like like that's the other thing. It's like okay, so Doc Ock causes massive explosion, becomes a supervillain, and then orders the same components to some. He appeared on some watch list somewhere from some like hey. Why would they order these things twice? Like, yeah, it's will, fucking 2004. You bet you come on, yeah, he's on a watch list. Oh my god, I, I'll go a step further. The Patriot Act was signed what three weeks before the, this stuff was filmed. I mean, let's be honest, I can't order bleach, gasoline, and Sudafed <laughs> without showing up on some list somewhere. <laughs> I mean, even Walter White had to steal a component to not show up on a list for crying out loud. <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> like, if they had at least shown a scene where Peter was trying to figure out where he was, and he like had a buddy, like uh, Captain Stacy and the police, who then had access to track. Oh, there's these deliveries, and so Peter's like, "Oh, I know where he's going to be." Rather than Doc Ock just handing him the address, that would have yeah. made more sense. They're missing key scenes like that, which honestly, that's the piece they left out of this film from the comic books. Generally, when Peter Parker has a story arc fighting a villain like Ock, it's five or six issues. There's at least two issues where he doesn't know where they're hiding and he's doing some of that investigative work, like leaning on his contacts with the police, talking to a friend here or there. Maybe he pokes in on Johnny Storm at the FF. Hey, can you see if Reed knows where someone would get such and such or where something like that would be delivered? And they would do things like that and all of that is left out of this film. Well, um, okay, so to that last point, though, they couldn't have because didn't that the, wasn't there still it was before Disney owned Marvel, right? Like, I'm trying to remember the timeline here. But they certainly did not own the Fantastic Four yet at this point. This wasn't even Marvel. This was, That's Sony. Right, this was Sony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic so they, Four was owned by Fox. So, right, so they, you, could, they, so they couldn't, have done that. couldn't do that. Yeah. And because they couldn't do stuff like that, it's an issue. And yeah. even in films, they don't do that terribly much, but the Disney Plus yeah. series allows for things like that. Now we're in a point where if this were to be done, if this type of film or this situation was done, now they could have him call somebody and they could have a cut scene. They tend to do it with characters like Wong or whatever, but they could have a cut scene where it's like, hey, you haven't done anything that would happen. And then they could have the FBI agent from Ant-Man. I forget his name. Wong. Uh, yep. yeah. BD Wong. Yeah. No, not um no, that's a law and order. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, not, no you're right. Wong. I have that's Benedict Wong, Jimmy Woo, Randall yes. Park. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. no, you're totally right. I, I went law and order on you. That's yeah, my you bad. Did. But you can have Call that character <laughs> deliver the information in some fashion. Yeah. It, it, in the Disney Plus series allows for those connections that will make some of those things make more sense. Yeah. But they do need to have eight to ten episodes versus six to eight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whole nother gripe. Uh, but mm-hmm. but Preach. Uh, they could not do that it, with these films. Right. Uh, but they should have at least shown some montage of him yeah. flipping through something, making a disturbance and leaning in and hitting a computer on a cop on a cop's car computer to try to get the information. They could have done something to make us realize Peter's smarter than just being in, in a class. Yeah, but but if they'd done that, then they would have robbed Sam Raimi's ability to go ahead and do the King Kong homage. I mean, that's and kidnap the girl, climb up to the tallest building you can find, and then threaten to throw her off. I mean, that's fair point. 
Yeah, he, he's and, a horror guy. Like, of course, he wants to do that. Yeah, and 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 I think that some of the issues that we are describing with this film are simply because of the choice of directors and for all the things he does well yeah. and that are enjoyable. The reality is, you hire James Gunn if you want quirky, off the wall, weird humor. Yep. You hire Sam Raimi if you want schlocky, cheesy horror homages that are reflective and make you smile. But at later on, when upon second viewing or when you're walking away from the first viewing, you're like, but was it really as good as I just laughed? <laughs> you know? yeah. And I'm so glad you're here for this discussion today because I'm understanding that in a way I haven't before about these movies and just how Raimi they, I would say for better or for worse, but for me, it's all for yeah. worse. Because and, we, talked about, we talked about the scene in the hospital earlier with the, when the nurse there gets captured by the arms and she's dragging her clothes, right? What's the next movie that Sam Raimi made after Superman 3? Drag Me Into Hell. So right. it's got, and he's like, he's using the same scenes movie after movie. That, I mean, that, that's, that's what he does. That yeah. is Evil Dead, end of Evil Dead, beginning yeah. Oh, of, yeah. of Army of Darkness. It's yeah. the exact same scene. They just put a yeah. different monster. Different monster, different, yeah, it's a different story. It just comes at the expense of everything else. Story and characterization. And as we're going to see her the next day after this engagement, this gala, it just keeps getting worse for women because we have MJ talking with her friend about the engagement. And this is where she says that she loves John and she seems genuine in that. And she's like, yeah, I love him very much. But that's not good enough for this friend. The friend wants poetry. She wants a flowery declaration of love. And I actually agree with MJ. She says, you read too many romance novels. And let me tell you guys, as a woman who does read two to three romantic suspense novels a week, <laughs> I agree. I romantic suspense novels. I love it. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and, but the problem is the movie is telling us, no, the friend is right. You want the flowery stuff. You want the poetry, not reality not a real healthy relationship we want yeah. the pie in the sky that doesn't actually exist and what i think is kind of interesting is that is also a facet of mj from the comic book despite the fact she's depicted much more strongly and as a better person in in the comic books there is a certain element of her that gets off on the excitement like she likes mm -hmm. the fact that my boyfriend is spider-man Right. Mm -hmm. uh, my boyfriend is out there saving the world on some level. She shares that thing with Peter Parker. Like she's not the one out there beating up the bad guys necessarily, but her thought process has had become I'm doing my part to save the world because I'm supporting the guy who's actually throwing the punches. Like she's getting him back on the horse to be able to go out there when he's like, I don't even know what to do with this anymore. She's like, well, you get to do this or that, or she throws him in an idea or whatever. I, I think she feels she's doing it. And I think there was an attempt at some point in the past to give her more oomph and more mm -hmm. direction in that way in the comic books that doesn't come through in the films at all. And I think it just comes across poorly for the character overall in that. Okay. So she's not doing that. Very unlike, yeah, and you know what? Very as a unlike military, Lois and Superman. Yeah, and as a military spouse, I very much understand that mentality. And it can be positive or it can be very unhealthy. <clears throat> Look, as, and as a military brat 
and as a person who was in the service who would see the the partners of my 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 fellow soldiers i can tell you i've seen both the positive and the negative of that there there oh, are yeah. spouses who were on point ombudsmen who are out there taking care of folks and doing all the right things and helping create an environment for service persons to go out there and do the stuff there are also enablers who are just willing to allow service people to be horrible persons because, well, boys will be boys. And well, there's also the, <laughs> do you know who my husband is? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. That, that one too. The world is all kinds that that happens in with the military. I am sure it happens in the police force and the corrective services. Shoot. It happens in, in call center companies. All of a sudden somebody's wife is like, my husband does this and this, this like that still doesn't mean you're not a shitty person. <laughs> you know, yeah. it doesn't change a thing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's exactly what it comes down to, you know, for both Peter and MJ in this movie. You're shitty people, no matter what you're doing. After this little dream tete a tete with Uncle Ben, I swear to God, if I see Cliff <laughs> Robertson's face one more time in my life, I'm going to have a stroke. Between that little dream chat and uh, our quality time with the doctor. Peter decides, you know what? I don't have to be Spider-Man anymore. So I'm just going to throw this suit haphazardly in the trash where anyone could find it. And who happens to find it? Yeah. yeah. The guy that sells it to the Daily Bugle. That is, are you guys fans of Parks and Rec? No. I, no. Oh, you're not? I've, no. I've never seen it. Oh, man balloon deflated my parks and Rex fans that is jj guys from oh. jj's diner okay yeah i'm not that far off from the the peter parker level loser category when it comes to my my pop culture knowledge <laughs> let's be honest i will say this that scene was there for one purpose it is one of the most iconic spider-man covers in the near 40 plus year history of the character and it was precisely peter walking away the only difference was it was actually raining when he in the comic books and i think it was just overcast or recently rained in the scene if i remember from my viewing last night but it was exactly that scene like that frame where he's walking away and you see the mask right before it fades to black and still shows the mask that was huh. the comic book cover and they did it because they needed to put that cover in the film the first film had the kiss which came from a, a much later time. I actually remember the first time I saw that kiss was in the nineties with Todd McFarlane's uh, Spider-Man series, mm. which was after they were married actually. And then they had that scene there and it was literally just to create the scene. And they did a very similar thing with the third film in the bell tower or whatever. They were all exact copies of specific scenes from the comic book. And it was, you must put this in. So people believe it's a comic book movie. Got yep. it. All right. Makes sense. Fine. Now, I have another question for you, gentlemen. Mm. Uh, do you think prior to the filming of this movie that Tobey Maguire had ever eaten a hot dog in his life? <laughs> Not a New York one, for sure. No. no. I mean, this is just another instance during this, what I call the loser montage. Is Peter Parker human? Is Tobey Maguire human? I mean, the only thing that that entire montage missed when he got the hat with the hot dog was if it had ketchup and mustard on it, he didn't spill it all over his white shirt. Like, that's the only right. thing that montage I was missed. waiting for that. And for all that's on the cutting room floor. 
exactly right. And when this ended with the freeze frame, I just threw my hands up and said, oh, for fuck's sake, <laughs> you have got to be kidding me. It's practically a Mentos commercial. I mean, that's well, like. Oh. I will say this. I love the song Raindrops. BJ Thomas, he was a hero of mine when I was a kid. I just love that song. I had it on a little wind up toy when I was really little and I didn't have a whole lot of toys, but that was one of them. And I remember when I would play that song incessantly to the point where my mom hated it. And I think I lost that toy at some point when my mom finally had it and ditched it somewhere yeah. on some road trip. I love that song. Like whenever it comes on, I'm immediately in a better mood. I'm singing right along. And I found myself doing it while watching the movie, even though Peter Parker was being an absolute dick through the entire show. He was just not a good person. I don't yeah. care. You don't have to be Spider-Man if you're watching somebody get mugged and you are an, at least not calling for police. I don't want you on my planet anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you have yep. the capacity to walk away from a person being harmed in front of you, please leave. Hook up with Bezos, step out the door when you're up there, and don't come back. Mm. I mean... I, I hated that moment. Yeah. And as much as I have issues with Peter Parker in the comic book being whiny, that's the thing that I really didn't like about this film. That's yeah. something that even Peter, when he quit being Spider-Man would not have done. Like yep. he couldn't have like, and if he tried, that would have been the moment that made him say, no, I can't walk away from yeah. Peter Parker. When he quit and he has done that a few times could have watched the cop cars drive down the road. You're not a cop. You don't, have to go there to see that that was perfectly okay they could have done three four of those he didn't have to go into the burning house i'm glad he did that showed that he had some that was the moment they chose but in my yeah, opinion and you know that moment can we can we get cps over there for the people who clearly just walked out of a burning building without their kid yeah why was their kid in a closet <laughs> and how like, did they where were like the they? buildings on fire yeah, can't, can't catch, your, walk. catch your kid. Yeah. Unless they were downstairs at the bodega and left the kid alone to begin with. In a closet. Yeah, either way. The kid go probably would not be Because kids will do that. Fire, they run to a safe spot, they hide in the closet. <sighs> but the parents didn't get the kid. And further, depicting them the next morning sitting out there, now getting oxygen. For all my firefighter friends and one of my oldest friends, the, my first friend in the entire world is a firefighter and I can guarantee you that kid is not okay. <laughs> no, exactly. no. That, that kid unfortunately died of a, of a pulmonary embolism the next day. Smoke inhalation is a thing. And even Spider-Man suffers from that in the comic. Yeah. Like he would not yeah. have been as okay as he was depicted immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So we get some more back and forth. Will they, won't they uh, between Peter and MJ here. And we head back over to the bugle and man, Jameson just has another great line about the wedding. You spend any more on this, you can pick the daisies off my grave. <laughs> and yeah. I think these, these great lines that he has in this movie, and, and Melina has a couple too, but it's really Simmons. I think it speaks to a larger problem that happens in some of these movies that I call, it's part of, uh, it's one of the symptoms that I call Thor, the dark world syndrome, where it's a <laughs> lot more, it's a lot more fun to write for, not only the villains, but the better actors. So they end up getting more care than the mm -hmm. hero. Yep. And when it's I, a problem because Tobey Maguire is no match 
for Defoe, Molina, Simmons, any of them. Right. No, here's the situation. You, when you talked about that in your Throw of the Dark World show, and I've listened to it twice now because it was really good. It made me really crystallize thoughts about that movie. I got it and I get it. And you're right. I mean, when you look at shows that last 10 years and then you watch the DVD features for that show, because I'm a wonk when it comes to shows I like, I watch mm-hmm. all the special features and I read articles with as many yeah, of the folks involved as possible. And when you listen to the people in the writer's room, when you're blessed with the moments where they get those writers on camera and talk about the characters, invariably a discussion that is held by nearly every writer vignette I've seen is we just loved writing for that character. And it was very easy. They usually cut the part where it's like, and, and, and what's his dick was terrible to write for it. We struggled with that. And that's why his scenes kept getting cut. Right. If you have, If you have a character who has less than 10 minutes of screen time, but they steal the whole movie, you got a problem. Yeah. And that's what happens here with Simmons. To go ahead and underscore how much of a wonk my friend here is for shows that he loves. I do have one of these like with great power comes great responsibility moments um, where I'm going to unfortunately have to break his heart a little bit because I did some research into who actually wrote Spider-Man 2 and half of the big name writers that did the screenplay for this came from Smallville. Okay, I never watched it. Yeah, Smallville was a great show. It was a fantastic show. And so I'm not sure why they messed this movie up so much. Like, that's like, but... There is something to be said about too many cooks spoiling the soup. Mm, That's fair. Yeah, there is that. And at the end of the day, no matter what a writer does, they are still subject to the direction of the director. Mm, That's also fair. And how he chooses to film it. So the words, like in the MJ line, the words were there for her to... And should have been for her to not sound convincing, yet she sounded convincing. That's not a writer problem. That's a director problem. The director chose the take where she sounded convincing because in his vision, she should be in love with uh, Triple J3. I just wanted to show off the flex about one of your favorite shows. That's all. I love the fact that you were all in on on Smallville. uh, (laughs) And that's really great information. And I'm... I would be interested to find out which episodes they wrote because I wonder if the one, the episodes that I liked or the scant few episodes that I didn't. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Fair. Yeah. That's <laughs> a really good point about direction versus writing for sure. Yep. And somebody said to me on social media yesterday about a post I had said about MJ being so poorly written and represented. Somebody said, it's a Spider Man movie. I'm not here to hear, about- I'm not there to see his love interest. I'm like, don't you see that's the problem? That kind of thinking is exactly what perpetuates terrible representation of women. I mean, don't get me wrong. We've come a very long way. Yeah. Superhero movies have come a very long way, most of them. But we still have these problems. And I look back on it and yeah. I just feel so angry on behalf of Kirsten Dunst. Yeah. You know? Sure, totally. She's a far I, I, superior actor to have been saddled with what she got and yeah. how it was directed. And I think that was kind of where my point was at the very beginning of the episode, Chris, when I was saying that one thing, I am not trying to excuse how bad this movie represented its fantastic female actors. 
by saying, let's not forget that this movie was from 2004, but it is to go ahead and illustrate that in the last almost 20 years, we have come a long way, a really long way. And the work is not done, but I think that it is important to remember that back in 2004, we were not having the discussions that we're having now about representation, about objectification, about any of these things. None of these conversations were happening. And the fact that they are happening and that the changes are beginning to take place and the fact that like it is now so apparent when a movie is so bad in this regard right like that is a huge step forward and that was that's really where i was trying to go ahead and say i wasn't trying to say that like because it was because it was filmed in 2004 i just want to make sure that i kind of express that out loud (laughs) here's what my problem is with it is that a lot of these movies we look back and we see how racist they are maliciously or how maliciously sexist they are and even though we're getting so much better representation today in 2022, people are still revering those old movies and excusing all of it and not changing their opinions because, oh, it was a different time and you've just got to excuse it and take the whole story into consideration. And no, there's a line. And we all have to understand where that line is. It may not be in exactly the same place for everyone, but there needs to be some agreement on what those lines are. And too often, uh, the line for the treatment of women gets ignored. Josh and I have spoken on our show a number of times, and Glenn as well, when we talk about our days, when we did vampire role-playing games, but we talked about how we existed in a space where we basically approached a game where we were going to be edgy. We were going to the gate, we would just tell people up front, this is a game about a very dark world where people do evil things. We're playing characters who are on the edge of evil to anti-hero. At, we are going to do things to shock you. And the more shocking we could be, the better we were. And if you didn't like that, this isn't the game for you. Be gone. That's effectively how we handled things. And that was the genre. That was the style of game that was being played in the late 90s. And we played it. And our take today is... It was wrong then. We should have known it. And while there are lots of good things that came out of role-playing that time, our current friendships blossomed in those times. We met people. We were part of scenes and situations that were really cool. But we were shitty. And we admit we were shitty. We admit we should have done better. And to Josh's point earlier, we do the work now to not be shitty moving forward. And, exactly. and that's that's growth and maturity. It, it, when we were talking about the character Ursula, it was cringy. It was bothersome. At the time, it was just a weird scene. Now I understand why it was weird. And now it's worse because I get it. The line never actually changed. What was wrong has always been wrong. Mm-hmm. My understanding of that line has improved. And, and that is what changes. The, like you said, the maturity changes. So when you look back at some things like, look, I can say I really enjoyed a movie because at the time because it was cool, but there are scenes that I just don't watch anymore. The beauty is I have a DVD. If there's scenes that I can't watch anymore because I'm not okay with that stuff, guess what I can do? I can watch the things that didn't include that and skip over the scene that did. I don't have to love an entirety of a film anymore. Like I said when we started, I enjoyed this film. I had fun with this film. I had fun watching it again, but I don't necessarily love this film. 
clearly have been here on the show talking about all the things that I had struggled <laughs> or I didn't like about the film. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, I liked it better than I do now. Mm-hmm. But I still yep. like the things I like. I just have a better understanding of, of, of other things. Doing our podcast, listening to your podcast, talking with people in the community uh, about different things and understanding the process a little bit better. Just the interviews you've done with various professionals in the field. I have a better understanding of the different pieces and parts than I had 20 years. And I think sharing that knowledge and Josh sharing his knowledge about look at the real meaning of the poem they used. I get the fact that everybody watching it may not, but I guarantee you the people who put that poem in there that paid money to be able to put that poem in there, they sure as shit had to know. There's some issues there and we don't have to like the whole thing. We can like the pieces and parts and we can certainly sit here and critique the things that should have been better. Yeah. And on the discussion of scenes we don't need, all this Peter and Aunt May, Ben's death, guilt stuff. Get this out of my movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even the, the Aunt May is going to give me her last $20 and then my landlord's going to steal it because I'm behind on the... Like, all that. Like, just so... Because it's, it comes to nothing. Right. Well, right. And further, they just added Aunt May to the list of shitty people in the story. If she was going to forgive him because it really wasn't directly his responsibility then why did she walk off? Unless we get a scene about her struggling I mean, with that, why yeah. would she walk off? Like, I, I mean, I, I, okay, I, that part- I, get, I get the fact that could have been there, but if you're going to put the scene in there, put the whole scene in there. I, mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to actually disagree with you on this one. Like, I get her kind of dealing with that off camera. Right. It's kind of a better version of what you were talking about earlier, Chris, where like, it's a Spider-Man movie. We're going to continue to go ahead and see Spider-Man. It's not a watch Aunt May struggle with the fact that her nephew feels responsible for killing her husband and all that sort of stuff. Like, So I almost understand that one a little bit that like Aunt May is like, because how many times have we been in this situation where it's like, I'm too pissed off to talk to you right now. I'm going to walk away. And then when you, it's like, you know what? I'm back. We're good. We're all fine. I'm okay with Aunt May having some external processing there. Right. But, but you know what? Think of it this way. Say it. She didn't say it. Like if yeah. she said, I needed time and I'm better now, I'd have been she, fine. I think Lee Winnie is right because that's the thing. If Aunt May was an actual real character in this movie, she'd get 30 to 60 seconds of having a little bit of a struggle with it. Maybe looking at a picture of Ben, something, looking at a picture with Peter. That's yeah. a, There's not even any family pictures that we really see a montage of in this house. There's no chemistry between Harris and Maguire. They never felt like a family. There was no yeah. time together, no presence at all. Yeah, I. you're not wrong. Like, I guess I'm just, I'm trying to, look, in a movie full of, piles of crap i'm trying to find one thing not to critique the film for and that's the thing i'm trying to you know hang my head on like yeah no i kind of understand aunt may saying i can't even look at you right now and leave i guess what i'm saying is all in or all out if you're gonna Mm -hmm. put it in you need the other stuff to go with it give it the proper context when she says she's fine it's another matter of like oh you're such a sweet boy of course i'll forgive you and give you what you want Give you oh, that forgiveness yeah. that you need. Yeah, no, that that's it's, that's it's fair. Unearned. It's unearned consequences. I I think I actually heard you and and Amy talking about that in one of the previous episodes. There's just some things mm-hmm. that if they don't put it on film or don't leave it on film, like part of me wants to believe the writers wrote that little scene 
or there was a pass over this and put it in there. But mm -hmm. one of those things that gets cut for time is the pass over her looking at the picture or that extra line that yeah. should have been when she's handing yep. stuff out. We got more time with the kid across the street than we got Aunt May looking at a picture of Uncle Ben. Eh? Yeah. Eh? Yep. Now we give our look back here because occasionally we're checking in on Doc Ock, seeing how everything's going. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't help but picture like Jeff Bridges hearing about this fusion project, Obadiah Stane hearing about this fusion project at Stark Industries and looking at one of his underlings and going, Doc Ock was able to build this on a barge. <laughs> <laughs> This wow. movie just had me thinking of other better movies throughout yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And, and he yeah. would have added with crap delivered by Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Doc Goodness. Ock can't finish his project without Tritium. And thus, he must go see Baby Goblin to get some more. And this is where, once again, we see that James Franco has one facial expression, and it is constipation. <laughs> <laughs> that was my best Franco face. I don't know. <laughs> and of course, he has the tritium yeah. all ready to go yeah. in his mini fridge in his penthouse. Yeah. And the whole deal is, all right, Doc Ock, I'll give you the tritium if you bring me Spider-Man so I can kill him. Yeah. But don't hurt Peter. Right. right. Totally. Yeah. Right. Like, does Osborne at this point even realize, like, at, at what point is he, again, it's the whole thing. Like, how many times has he seen Spider-Man, heard his voice? Like, Lewanika, I would like to say that if you put on Spider-Man's costume and descended from my ceiling in front of me after I swatted at you because I fucking hate spiders, I would probably hear you go, ow, as you hit the wall and be like, Lewanika? Like, <laughs> look, more no, like great. I've heard your voice more than the average friend, perhaps, because we do a podcast together, 100 something episodes, 200 hours of audio, whatever. Right. To be fair, I have a very unique shape that is would be hard <laughs> to match. Um, look, don't worry, the CGI will take care of that. Slim yeah, you right okay. down. Yeah, well, hey, if it shrinks my head, that in and of itself would be great. But taking the visual out of the issue, I would say this. He's wearing a mask. And in the comics, they talk about the mask changing his voice slightly. They just do it poorly in the film. I would say that the voice itself, maybe not. People see what they want to see and they hear what they want to hear. They will see a hero or in, in the case of this situation, Franco, his character, Baby Goblin, is seeing Peter Spider-Man as the villain. He's going to think of his voice in a much more maniacal way. This is the evil guy that killed my father. Of course, he doesn't sound like my wussy, whiny best bud from high school who can't even tie his shoes right. Like, he will yeah. naturally not think it's him. Therefore, he won't hear it that way. I would say this, though. In that situation where you swatted at me, and you clearly couldn't hit me because I'm Spider-Man, right? And I get to <laughs> and I miss. The fact that I would laugh, and my laugh is ridiculously unique, there's only one other person on the planet I know that has my laugh, and that's my father. That's how you would know. You yeah. would know when I laugh. You would know yeah. when I did some personal idiom that you've known for years that yeah. only I do. And yeah. I think that's the part where if the whole how does he not know falls apart. At least Well, that's what happens with MJ. She at least says when I he think says, I've always known. Which is bullshit. 
And he That's literally, a- that happens in the movie when Peter shows up. I can't remember if it's this or the first one. And says, I was just in the neighborhood. Turns into Spider-Man five minutes later. I was just in the neighborhood in the same voice. Yeah. And again, I'm not going to, I don't want to keep beating this drum, but that's a 2004-ism. I mean, that's Jerry Maguire. Like, you had me at hello, right? It's like, it's not like a, I know, you're going to barf. I, I hear you. But that's where that line's coming from, right? Like, that's, that's, I've always known. Like, of course you did, MJ. Sure you did. Sure. And uh, again, I think the 2004ism is that they didn't sell the difference in voice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think in the Superman films, generally speaking, for the most part, my recollection is he was very careful. And, and Christopher Reeve, when he was alive, spoke about all the time. He did the voices different. He acted them as they were different characters for yeah. that mm-hmm. purpose. So I know it was in that one. It's not in every depiction of Superman, but it was definitely in the Christopher Reeve one. We know Michael Keaton did that with his Batman version of Batman. <laughs> yes. Batman. I was actually, I said this in the first episode, but I was thinking about both the Burton and Schumacher Batmans in this movie mm. too, because we see that without Spider-Man, crime is up 75%. This NYPD and their officers make Commissioner Gordon and the Gotham police look like the fucking cast of Criminal Minds. <laughs> not, not just that, but I mean, of course, Michael Keaton had to change his voice when he was Batman, because otherwise Batman would have sounded like the early 80s version of Billy Joel. And you can't have Batman sounding like that. They're going to break out into the, a doo-wop group at some point with Gordon. Like, that's, I mean, that's this just is, not going to happen. Like, that's... This is true. And that Batman also needed a deeper voice to offset the fact that he, he was only five foot ten and really not in shape. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, I will say just one other thing, though, that like as cheesy as that line was by MJ at the end there, when she's like, I've always known. I will say that the cafe scene does back that up, because what's the one thing that she asks from Peter is kiss me. She wants to put those two together. She has put it together at that point in her head. And she's like, I need to know something. Kiss oh, me. no, I don't think so. I didn't read it that way. No, I read well, it as, I'll, I'll, I'll know if you really love me by your kiss. It's that romantic romance it's novel nonsense. Song. I mean, I think it's built like that. Yeah, I think it's kind of wrapped. In, I think that's what we're supposed to think. But I, but it, I don't know. It, because it's, if, if she did know, then the whole flip-flopping in the whole movie is negated. Because, because why she, didn't she say anything before? Or why didn't she just accept his excuses and wait for him to tell her? Because she realized because because it's also at that moment in time that she realizes that Peter Parker's also. I was going to say something really unkind, but Peter Parker she realizes that Peter Parker is actually kind of the guy that we've been saying he is this entire movie. Like he's really he's he may be Spider Man, but he's also a loser. And like, do we can she square that circle versus getting off and marrying werewolf astronaut here? this is where I think the writers and your knowledge that the writers improved were great because after 2004, two years later, is when Lana knows for almost an entire season Clark's secret and realizes all the crappy stuff that happened where he just owned his shit and just acted like, I'm sorry, I'm just not good enough. That why that happened. And then she kept his secret for almost a full season before she revealed to him that she knew all along. And that was written after 2004 so i didn't even recognize those two things so it could very well be they figured out the answer to the problem we're describing and then wrote it into a long-form show where you have the ability to let it breathe yeah i would love to let you have that unfortunately see this is really where the dagger gets like pushed in just a little bit there the stories of of spider-man 2 is credited to alfred gow who is the one who basically 
was an executive producer on Smallville and came up with the story with Miles Millar. So I'd love to love you have that, my friend. I would love to let you have that. <laughs> if I did something that failed miserably, but I had a kernel <laughs> of a good idea. Yeah. And I figured out with better production, better time, better resources, uh, yeah. and the knowledge of what made it fail, I could do it better. Yeah. I'm probably doing it better or making sure it gets done better the next time around. Let, let the two of us be remembered for our podcast and not for all the things that we fucked up for the last 25 years. That's something like that. Something <laughs> exactly. like that. For God's sake, remember the let, new stuff. I am let a this be the pinnacle better, of our accomplishments. <laughs> I'm a far better human being today than I was 25 years ago. I am a far better writer than I was 25 years ago. Everything I did 25 years ago, I am better at now with the exception of dancing and playing football. <laughs> oh, you know what? That that segues into the whole concept of coordination here and brings us to my favorite scene of the movie, which is Mr. Parker testing his powers and busting his ass. I want those glasses, by the way. <laughs> While it did have tape at the very end, those glasses took a beating. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. We, we're setting off a car alarm just to add insult to injury. Yep. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that was, was so actually fabulous. one of the most brilliant pieces of the film. Like I that, laughed out loud when that happened. That punched <laughs> the scene all the way home. Yep. And now we come to all this further MJ nonsense. Again, John seems like a perfectly nice guy. They're doing their wedding invitations. And she's just playing him for a fool because the next day she, we're at the coffee shop she looks at herself in the mirror oh sorry no i'm, I'm, I'm a scene ahead i'm a scene of mj nonsense ahead of you that's, that's, yeah. i i will say this it's it felt to me like in that moment she figured out she was not going to marry him and everything else was her trying to figure out how she was going to make that happen how to get out uh, yeah. how to get out and she ended up saying i guess i'll have to go through with it and then at last minute said, I can't go through with it and then bailed. But yeah. uh, I really got the impression that she was on the fence, still a shitty thing to do uh, when mm -hmm. you're filling out in invitations and then did the whole kiss thing as a means of saying, can this be as magical as this other kiss? Which, by the way, is weird because that wasn't Peter, the guy she's pining after anyway, as far right. as right. Uh, I hadn't even thought of that. Oh, my God, you're totally right. And she doesn't yeah. know yet. That's what I'm saying, though, is I think she does. So that, that's... Well, if you're saying she knows in her heart, but she hasn't figured it out in her head, possibly. I, there's a little bit of evidence towards that. And, and her specific line was, I think I've known all along. And that may be why she had this deep pining and why she went for that type of kiss versus just, I need to be with Peter. Because she was, there were dots that were somewhat connected, but they weren't all connected. Like she couldn't put her finger on it. I guess that could be. But again, Raimi's not the nuanced director. Mm -hmm. We yeah. need a better director to make that the point. And that would make her much less of a shitty person. Because at least she's not ditching him because he couldn't kiss like a third guy. Right? Yeah. Which yeah. is how I viewed it. <clears throat> if it's, yeah. look. You're pining because of Peter that's an old friend. Look, I, I almost get that. You probably could have done it better. Whatever. 
But if you're pining over Peter and then you want him to kiss you like some third guy who wasn't Peter, then yep. that tells me that there's something really wrong with you. And yeah. if we had a better nuanced director and we had some better scene craft to put all these pieces together, like there's something about this or whatever. I, I'm not sure. They wrote themselves into a wall there and their way of getting dealing with it was next scene. Yep. Like you can't write individual scenes like this scene is cool. And this makes sense meta to the fans, but it doesn't make internal sense and have that end up being a good film because some people, I think many people, hopefully most people will say individual scenes could have been great. It doesn't change the fact that when you put them all together, that's not a nice person. Yep. So as we said earlier, this whole sequence of Doc Ock throwing the car through the coffee shop, the whole train scene, this is very well done. We cannot knock the movie for this. Yep. Fabulous fight scene. Fabulous oh, fight scene. It, it, it makes yep. the movie. Yep. Till the very end. Yeah. It's why I like this movie as much as I do is literally that se- that sequence through there. Yep. Yeah. And it's at the end of the sequence where we really get the Freedom Fries filmmaking with all of these people <laughs> standing up to the supervillain who's just been tossing people out of this train yeah. like they're those skeet discs that people and, shoot. I actually thought that was hysterical. I thought that was a hysterical moment where it's like all these people standing up to protect Spider-Man in front of Doc Ock and Doc Ock is just like, get the fuck out of the way. <laughs> get, the, yeah. get the fuck and out of the way. And they're all going to keep his identity a secret. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And wasn't no. that the guy from The Sopranos? Wasn't that? Uh, yes, I believe <laughs> so. And I don't know if they should say the phrase on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Was, was, that, was that Uncle Junior? No. I never watched. The, no, that was Michael Imperioli, no. wasn't it? I'll, I'll say it with spelling. The character's name was Big P-U-S-Y. Yes, it was. You, you can say that. It's okay. I wasn't sure. I, we're we're yeah. fine with it. That anyway, was the answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a character thing. I was like, I'm looking at it like, really? Big Pussy was in the was, was in yeah, the so I never knew that. Yeah. And like, and then he went off and helped shoot some guy with Tony. I don't know. but <laughs> It's okay. We have said Mule and Quim on this podcast, so you can call a character Big mm. Pussy. That's fine. Mr. Hilson does that so much better than I just did. I don't know if that's a good thing. (laughs) It probably isn't. I kind of liked it, even though I was thinking as much as I love New York and New York City, and I'm from upstate New York, and I have, which is very different than the city, but I have a great deal of love for the city. I love going there. and, And there's no way that many, if it was a sparse train, there's like five or six people. Yes, you could get that seat. That many people on the train, somebody snapping that picture. Somebody yeah. is taking that shot. Somebody's going to yeah. let us know. So Doc Ock does hold up his end of the bargain. He does get a, a hold of Peter and brings him back to Harry's apartment. And, oh, Josh, as you said, oh, my God, th- the ham factor. You can smell this ham three mm. blocks away. And it's not even good ham. It's like spoiled, rotten ham that's growing mold in the fridge for a month. It's like the boiled ham that you could get for $2 a pound when I was a kid. It's not yes. even like overly salted. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like ham, ham you give to the dog to go ahead and take pills. Yeah. So yeah. Harry is just beside himself when he rips off this mask and, oh, can't do it. But you killed my dad. It's awful. It's awful. Just yeah. like I'm not I sure that there are words in English to go ahead and say how bad scene, it was. It was the one scene where Tobey Maguire stands up and actually looks like a character who's taking charge in his life, where he says, 
there are things that are bigger than you and I. Like he stood up, delivered that line. And I was like, that's a character I could get behind. Unfortunately, that is very infrequently Peter Parker, very infrequently yeah. Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah because guess what, Peter Parker? There. there are things bigger than you and MJ. Right. Like, that's the irony, right? Like, what he's saying is bigger than him and Osborne and everything like that is that he needs to go rescue MJ from Doc Ock, right? Right. Like, yeah. Ugh. Just, yeah. you know. Yeah, so that's and- next on the agenda. The machine is becoming unstable once again. and Shockingly. And- as machines yes. do. Yes. Right? Machines controlled and- by AI-infused octopus arms. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And Ms. Watson is once again completely helpless. Mm-hmm. And uh, tied up, but Damsel in what, I, what I do like is that Doc Ock, his humanity overpowers the machine. Here, he gets a little bit of redemption, and he tells Peter to uh, to drown the machine in the river. Now, I'm not a scientist myself, <laughs> but so uh, let me go ahead and science for a second here. So, if you have a son, right? <laughs> Burning ball four million degrees light for million years. Not even flame. The sun is hydrogen that is so tightly compacted and so hot it turns into a liquid plasma, right? Generates enough heat that from sixty-eight million miles away, you can get a sunburn. Okay. And you when put you it in a hydrogen rich environment. In water. In water. You drop it in water. What the is source water? Of hydrogen. hydrogen and oxygen? What is hydrogen and oxygen? It is a fuel and an accelerant. Yeah. Yeah, you can't extinguish a sun by dropping it into water because it's so hot. And now, so not only the fact, I mean, it was look, it was also he's in a wooden building and he's 10 feet above the water. Like he's already got problems. By, <laughs> right. Can, can, can that's I a also, quote like you can, like yeah, that's a quote. <laughs> can I also add if this thing is powerful enough to magnetize metal and drag cars from blocks away way, blocks you can't see in the wide shot. The whole building already fell in. Yeah. Because yeah. every nail in the building already went into this yeah. thing. Therefore, the whole structure collapsed. Right. Oh, and anyway. blocks away, it came in. It, it, it it's all, anyway, because all, all of the iron in, in Doc Ock and Spider-Man and MJ's blood would have just shot out of their eyeballs. Like, that's... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, come so on. Once, that was hard once on the our, soul. Once our fireball here is drowned... Peter has to stop the building from falling down at MJ because she's just too stupid to get up and get out of the fucking way. Oh, she had How a beam long up. did you have to hold that wall? How long? Quite Come a while. On. Yeah, so we she, was trapped our... by, she was trapped by a beam, I suppose. So we have our declarations of love, but Peter says, no, we can never be together, which then sets up MJ's decision to just take life by the horns and... Be so happy and thrilled and elated about leaving a decent man at the altar, which is just mm-hmm. one of the shittiest things you can do to a human being. Yep, her Thelma and Louise moment. What's well, a really good example of how to do a proper? Because at least that guy was was not a good person. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, werewolf astronaut on face value is a good person until he turns into a werewolf. Even then, he was a hero. He had his own comic book. What's a show that really did a leaving at the altar very well was Frasier. When mm. Daphne leaves her yep. fiance Donnie at the altar for Niles, yeah. they have to face some serious emotional and economic consequences as a result of that because she understands that what she did was shitty. Yeah. 
And the show absolutely addresses that. It just infuriates me that not only are they saying it's a good thing that MJ did to this guy, she's following her heart, but it just makes her look like the shittiest woman Wait a minute. in the world. This is the kind of woman that the incels can point to yep. as a bitch. You know what else came out in 2004 that is uh, so for one Frasier's a fantastic parallel. Runaway Bride? Uh, uh, no, the season 10 of Friends was in 2004 also. With the whole Rachel and Ross and that whole kibitz. Yes. I I think there's a romanticism about the bride running away to be with their true love being some kind of mercy killing for the le- the, uh, the left Pers- the, the left groom as at least you didn't spend your life with someone who didn't love you. Like that's a merciful death of sorts. And I think that's very romanticized and very infrequently do they show the weight of that kind of decision. If you're doing it in a rom-com, I don't know if you necessarily need to go there because it's a movie, it's contained, and they never show the day after anyway, right? right. If you're doing it in a franchise film, it's a problem because you are showing the day after unless you're showing it five years later. And clearly in a situational comedy or any kind of serialized television or weekly show, if you're not showing it's a problem, because then you're just being, you're showing that these people are jerks because you are, again, seeing the day after. And and I think that's the problem with it. And though we have this beautiful Vera Wang commercial, I'm assuming it's a Vera Wang dress. I don't know enough about to know one way or the other. So if it's not, I apologize. It's just, that's the only manufacturer of, bridal gowns i know of so it looks like this beautiful scene that you would see on a commercial or whatever but it's a terrible act yeah and it's the terrible that you this, got that far and the button on this scene is mj showing up at peter's apartment and saying quote i can't survive without you i yep i hate that line but if you had to have that line why couldn't they have just added and you can't survive without me. If there was some kind of parody, like we need each other, then I could have been at yeah. least okay with it. And I don't know if it was truncated, but as I was watching it last night, or this, I actually rewatched that scene this morning. As I was watching it, I actually said the second part of that in my head, thinking that the line would have been there. And when it wasn't, I'm like, are you shitting me? They left it at that? Like, like, how do you do that? Like, no, I can't survive without you. He's a superhero. What if he dies tomorrow fighting somebody worse than Doc Ock? (laughs) You you know? Then what are you going to do? You're going to shrivel up? So much. So much wrong with that statement. It was was awful. And how disrespectful to just be in that wedding dress in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then to cap all this off. We have uh, Baby Goblin having mm-hmm. his first goblin freakout, which makes no sense because he hasn't had any goblin juice yet. Seeing his father in the mirror and then revealing all these secret rooms that were magically hidden in this giant New York penthouse yeah. apartment. I- I'll be honest. I did not understand any of that. I did not. All of it was lost on me. Like I, 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 I have some context for that. In the comic books, Green Goblin... While he had some things going on and then later retcons, he has goblin juice or whatever. 
Uh, the issue is he was insane before he had any of that. So he was hearing voices before he got that just gave him the ability to manifest it in a different and better way. And I think in the first film, some of those whispers and some of those weird idiosyncrasies that that Defoe depicted was showing the insanity ahead of time and better mm. writing, better uh, scripting could have shown some of the scenes, preferably with him and, and Harry growing up where some of that insanity reflected in poor treatment of Harry growing up, which would have yep. been better for the second film anyway. And yep. mm -hmm. the issue in the comic is Harry also has that same thing. It's a very bad depiction of a dissociative disorder is what the character was written to have before all the superhero stuff happened. And they toned down that element because they obviously have a better understanding of those disorders now. And they didn't want to play up that. Like, if you have this non-neuronormal issue, you become a Green Goblin. They didn't want to say that. And right. so they left it on, if you take this bad juice, you can now have that. And I think that's okay. the context that's lost in this whole thing. So Harry just has it without having any of the Goblin juice. And they just said, people will buy it. And we get to, and Defoe was kind enough to lend us his voice. <laughs> yep, they're just writing checks they can't cash all over the place. Ugh, awful. Yeah. Yep. Thank the Lord. Gentlemen, that brings us <laughs> to the conclusion. The end Ugh, of Spider-Man 2. What a pile of crap this was. Like, really? Well, like, Just be thankful you don't have to cover Spider-Man 3 next week. <laughs> <laughs> I am so glad you picked this one and not the uh, and not one or, or, or uh, and not You're going to unchain us from our desks and let us go? Three's rough. Three's rough. <laughs> yes. Next week, I will be covering Spider-Man 3 with Paige Branson, co-host of the Level 7 Access podcast, because that movie, God Almighty, requires two women. <laughs> but after that guys get excited because amy is back and we will be Yay. bringing you an episode on eternals fantastic Excellent. i can't wait chris you've done a fantastic job carrying the show while uh, while amy was uh, was taking care of herself we and uh, we're i know i'm very excited to go ahead and have uh, have the two of you back because we love your podcast and we love you guys so uh, uh much love to to both of you and thanks for having us come on this was fun no it's amazing and i promise you i'm going to be watching eternals when we're done recording after i grab some food so i will actually be ready i can i'll be able to listen to the podcast and not have to worry about spoilers at all so i'm very excited about that you may be unchaining him from his desk but i'm not going to we've got a book coming out in a couple of weeks i need him writing so <laughs> <laughs> well thank you gentlemen and thank you everyone for joining us today yeah. in the meantime while you wait for Paige and i to roast spider-man 3 come chat with me or just send me poop emojis if you wish <laughs> on twitter and instagram at marvel madams and for more content including our blog go to our website themarvelousmadams.com where infinity stones are a girl's best friend. Tabletop Journeys is a uh, podcast all about the tabletop role-playing space. We talk a lot of Dungeons & Dragons, but we talk a lot of other uh, indie games, too. Uh, really excited to have a bunch of really cool stuff coming in for 2022. We'd love for you to go ahead and check us out. Catch us on Twitter, at TT Journeys. You can search for us on Facebook. Just look for Tabletop Journeys. You'll find the group there. And if you have any questions, you can always email us at podcast at ttjourneys.com. You hear uh, me, Lou Anika, and our illustrious co-host, Glenn. So... Yeah, we have actual plays every Tuesday and mm -hmm. we do our main content and our interviews on Saturdays. And 
we have a great time doing some things and we have some really exciting stuff coming up in the next few weeks and in the in, for the rest of this year with our actual play episodes. Yeah. All so. right, everybody. We will see you next week. <laughs>